You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's guest who, believe it or not, I ran into on Twitter, but what an amazing background this individual has, spending time deployed to Iraq in three different functions as well, working with the Secretary of Defense and help get Afghans out after the collapse. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. Uh, real quick, a note, continued thanks for all the positive feedback we've gotten on our episode with Jason Kander a couple of weeks ago, uh, just the the powerful emotions that were shared uh, by Jason and myself in, in that whole episode. I continue to get feedback from it uh, on our website, hazardground.com. But thank you all for watching and listening and certainly uh, providing us with feedback that you really enjoyed it and thought it was a, a message that was, worth, was worthwhile hearing. So continued thanks for that. Speaking of our website, hazardground.com, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to hazardground.com, you click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or into the Sponsors tab. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's an easy way to help out vets and veterans charities all across America just by doing Amazon shopping. Also works from your smartphone or to redirect it to the app. Keeps all your credit card information saved. Very easy, very convenient. Speaking of your smartphone, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Ground. At Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep the Apple reviews coming. They'll certainly help grow the show. We appreciate all the love and support there. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Killcliff TV app. Of course, all of our shows are available on our YouTube channel to watch and the Killcliff TV app. Don't forget about our sponsors and our friends. Killcliff.com, clean energy, CBD energy if you need it. Uh, some of the best energy drinks out there. You guys know I'm a continual user of the products, but Killcliff.com, where you get them all and Proceeds from Killcliff go to benefit the Navy SEAL Foundation. All right, this week's guest has spent eight years in the Army Reserve of all places in the post-9-11 world. He did three different deployments overseas. One as a soldier, one as a contractor, one as a DA civilian. He spent time working with the Secretary of Defense, and he even helped get Afghans out of Afghanistan after the fall as part of Digital Dunkirk. He currently works in the tech industry in the civilian sector. He is... Alex Plitzis, a Plitzis, sorry, Plitzis, joining us here on the Hazard Ground. We even worked on the name. We spoke about it for the show. Alex Plitzis, how are you, brother? Welcome to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thanks Good for being here. Thanks for having me. Uh, fantastic, man. Look, an, an incredible story um, from you. And it's funny because we, we initially interacted on Twitter, and I forget yeah. who the guest was that we were talking about. And I, I you know, Mill Twitter is a weird place. Like we all sort of yeah. cross paths at one point in time. Or another. So I was familiar with your work, and I think I followed you at some point in time just because of some of the intelligent commentary that you had, which Twitter was uh, not a place for intelligent commentary. therapy bills. Yeah. <laughs> that said, I mean, I said, listen, man, let's get you on the show. And you're like, nah, you don't need anybody at my level. I said, no, we need to get you on the show. And then the more research I did on your background, the more interested I got. And it's a it's a handful, brother. I mean, for only eight years of service, uh, even in your post-military career, you stayed connected to the Department of Defense no. for quite some time. So uh, even now you're fully a civilian, I think you probably breathe a sigh of relief after all that. Uh, it's, it's been a, It's been a very unique run that I'm excited to hear about. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, it definitely was. I think so. The original connection was actually back to Jason Kanner. You mentioned earlier, yeah. uh, you know, feedback from the the uh, uh, audience. Uh, Jason and I went to college together a long time ago. He was a few oh. years older. Jason was in ROTC. I was at American University. Got a chance to hear him speak because um, he was a few years older, and uh, that was my first introduction to him. 
And, um, you know, afterwards, he became the youngest statewide elected official at age 30 in Missouri as the secretary of state there. He'd also been a state rep and then, um, you know, was on a path to run for president and mayor of uh, Kansas City. Um, And for like so many, I think, other combat veterans, especially ones like myself who didn't do anything valorous or heroic, I wasn't wounded, um, you know, dealing with some of the PTSD when you get back, you know, I kind of felt guilty about doing anything about it because nothing had happened to me. I wasn't wounded. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a Valor Award recipient. I didn't do anything. Um, and it was kind of a little bit embarrassing as well. And Jason's story really kind of inspired me to go uh, get some treatment and, and uh, try to reclaim that lost decade that I spent uh, self-medicating with vodka, like so many other folks, I think, who listen to the podcast and who have uh, you know, served over the last 20 years and stopped throwing myself a pity party. And I really owe Jason that inspiration. Yeah. Uh, and again, same here. You know, I mean, Jason was one of the... Uh one of the main reasons I decided to do the same to go back and just sort of uh, face the music, so to speak, about uh, what has gone over in my life in the last 15 years and start to figure out why. Um, and so uh, without going down that road again for the third time, I don't need sure. to, uh, to get all emotional. But, yes, uh, he's, he's an outstanding man. Uh, let's talk about your beginning and your start in the military. Sure. Uh, eight years in the Army Reserve. Not the typical you know, guests that we interview. Usually guys get rated out of high school, ROTC, whatever it may be. You decided Army Reserves. Why? So I was a junior volunteer fireman, Mamaronek in Westchester, right outside. It's the last all-volunteer department before you hit New York City. Um, and I was 16, I think, on 9-11 at that point. It was a Catholic high school in White Plains. Uh, we were living in Riverdale in the Bronx, and you know, 9-11 happened. We had lost a football coach. A couple of kids lost parents. Uh, it was the first day of a Catholic school teacher strike. Half, you know, a bunch of kids' parents worked in finance. Others were you know, firemen or, or cops in the city. So just mayhem. And um, all the volunteer departments in Long Island, you know, got one to cover Queens and Brooklyn and then Westchester got called in to cover the Bronx. So for the first couple of days after the attacks, school was closed, couldn't get back into New York City, which is where I you know, was living at the time. And I was still you know, a member of the Department of Maronick, which is his own story. And uh, all the adult firemen had gone down to run fire calls in the Bronx. We were the only ones for a couple of days running calls in town. So you can imagine if you've got a fire call and you get a 13 to 17 year old kid showing up, walking off a fire truck is not normal. <laughs> so I ended up at the trade center that Saturday and Sunday afterwards. I took the train and went down, um, had absolutely no business being there whatsoever. But, um, you know, it was kind of too ignorant and stupid as a kid to really understand the magnitude of the yeah. tragedy going on around me. And like, I needed to be there. I needed to help. Um, which is kind of ridiculous, and it was uh, you know a stupid, selfish thing to do as a kid. You know, listen, it's not. I, I, I grew up in New York, okay. So you know, my old man, uh, my stepfather was a cop for thirty-five years in New York. My brother was a plumber; he's a union guy working in the city. Walked across the Brooklyn Bridge to get home, but they we all. I mean, there were tanks rolling down the Long Island down the damn Long Island yeah. Expressway headed to, to to Manhattan. We never thought you would have yeah. seen that in your entire life. But everybody had those feelings. Didn't matter what age. I needed to go help. Everybody wanted to help. Um, so I don't think that's yeah. weird at all. It didn't, didn't matter the age. It was New Yorkers had to come together in those moments. And I think they all did an amazing job. It, which was great. And that was kind of my inspiration for going in. So I left. I graduated. I went to college in, uh, in Washington, D.C. I did my undergrad at American University. And my freshman year, spring of my freshman year, some debate came up about Afghanistan and the war in Iraq or whatever else. And some kid who held some pretty interesting viewpoints made a couple of comments that basically stopped just short of saying that we deserve 9-11 based on foreign policy. So, of course, at this point, I'm ready to jump the desk. I'm furious. Professor breaks it up. And uh, (laughs) pardon my my French, but the kid gets the parting shot from across the room. And he goes, if you feel so fucking strongly about a tough guy, why don't you sign up? I sat there and just had a stunned silence. And I was like, holy crap, he's right. And it was a Wednesday afternoon at like like a one o'clock class. Went back to the dorms, grabbed a beer. Army recruiting commercial came on, you know, whatever one it was at the time. Um, (laughs) I picked up the phone and the recruiter's like, let me get this straight. You've never been arrested. You've never done any drugs. You graduated from high school. You got a full scholarship to college 
and you want to voluntarily enlist in Army Special Operations of the Reserve. I'm like, yeah, of course. He's like, don't move. I'll be there in 30 minutes. Don't talk to anybody. <laughs> Do me a favor. Tape yourself to a chair. Uh, don't leave the don't house. Don't go anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, he must prank caller. Who is this? Prank caller. Hang yeah. up. This guy can't be real. So my parents are both, you know, my, my mom and stepdad are both oncologists. They were at Columbia University at the time. Um, you know, this the, the fact two wars were going on, this did not go over well at all. Right? So I don't even tell them about any of this. So this is a Wednesday. I go take the practice as bad. Saturday morning, I get picked up three days later after a frat party wearing letters with a paddle at like five o'clock in the morning, get driven up to Meps in Baltimore. And I get in there not knowing anything. I had, you know, my uh, my dad had been in Vietnam as a uh, as a draftee, but uh, my mother's father and uh, was at New York Maritime, you know, Fort Schuyler, and then probably four or five other members of the family. They were all naval officers, Korea, World War II. And then there's this anomaly where I'm like the Army enlisted guy. So I don't know my ass or my elbow at this point, but I walk into the, you know, go through Meps. And the guy's flipping through the screen and he's like, I got one for you. $30,000 bonus, uh, laundry and textile specialist. I was like, no, next, do this again. And then he's like, you know, aviation refueling. I was like, look, you have one more shot before I'm walking the fuck out of here because I have no patience for this. So he flipped the screen around and I'm scrolling through. And I had just seen the movie, The General's Daughter, which was about, you know, PSYOP. I was like, oh, PSYOP, airborne. And it's like, and it comes with security clearance. Not I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool. Yeah, sign me up for that. You know, <laughs> so I had no idea what I was doing. I signed up for this reserve unit. And um, so basically I enlisted in the reserves and then in, uh, the, went to boot camp in the summer of 04, right after finishing pledging a fraternity, took the fall off and initially did. Oh, so wait, wait a second. Hold on. You, you can't skip past that. So I have to ask <laughs> tougher pledging the fraternity or boot camp. Uh, different in different aspects. I remember the first couple of weeks with kids crying at boot camp, you know, like, oh, I can't believe this. I'm like, well, at least they can, they, there's legally things they can't do can't to do me that get done during pledging. Where <laughs> 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 things go. Um, but you can imagine it's the loudmouth wise ass New Yorker with a couple of Southern drill sergeants. They were not necessarily. Oh yeah. I, I had that same problem at, <laughs> uh, at my advanced camp when I went, like, I remember there was this E8, big tall black guy, E8, former drill sergeant. Yeah. And every, every, it was deep and yelling. And he asked me, hey. And I'm like, yeah. And he looked at me and went, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Oh my God, He's like, awesome. it's yes. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Uh, yes, I'm agreeing. So anyway, uh, yeah, the, the loudmouth New Yorker doesn't go over well uh, in those environments. And I had that same drill sergeant as everybody else did that, that stereotype. His name was Alfred Jackson. I'm in Baghdad in 2010, second time over as a contractor, and I'm in the PX on Victory Base Camp. I happen to go walking in there, and I looked to my left, and my jaw dropped, and his name just popped out of my mouth. It was Alfred Jackson. And he heard me, and his head swiveled and looked right at me, and I still had one of those <gasps> moments. <laughs> but it was good. We got a chance to catch up for like about a good 20 minutes and kind of filled me in on what he had been up to and everything else. So. Um, just wild the fact that, you know, on that tour, I think I probably ran into four or five kids from my, uh, my basic class who I didn't know. They were from all over the country. And then I ran into one of my own drill sergeants. It's just totally bizarre. Completely insane. All right. So, uh, you, you go to boot camp during the summer while you're still in college. Yep. Are you waiting actually till you get out of college before you actually start going to drilling service or no? No, no. So okay. I was in active drilling the entire time. I took that fall semester off and I did comms. They gave me some credits for basic electronics and, you know, uh, uh, I mean, the athletic portion of it, they gave me like the gym class credits that you normally have to take in college as your electives. So I had to take one class over the following summer to make sure I caught up with my peers. So I actually, so I only did three and a half years on campus, but then they gave me some credit for the time I took off. And then during the course of that, uh, my unit, they were like, that's nifty that you went to comm school. We need more PSYOP specialists. You're going to PSYOP school. So that, so then I went back to school to change MOSs. And I went into ROTC at Georgetown uh, as a fraternity boy, which never, you know, goes over well with PT at five in the morning with frat parties. And, um, 
that's where I first met Jason and a few others. And um, I was supposed to graduate, which I did graduate in 2007. And I was putting in a reserve commission packet and my unit got orders to leave for the search. And that, I mean, that was the whole reason for joining, you know, join the military, especially right. the reserves at that point was to actually go to war as opposed to folks in previous wars or some people signed up to avoid service. And, um, you know, I've heard the stories as of you and that, you know, that is what it is. And so I had a choice to make. It was either commission or go over as an NCO leading a team. And, uh, and I didn't want to miss the war. So I decided to go over and forego the commission. Okay. Um, let me let me unpack some other things here real quick. One. Sure. Do you remember the kid's name who dared you to join? Paul. Okay, you do. All right. I was just curious. I always remember. We actually became friends afterwards. Really? Did you tell him yeah. that you signed up? I did. And what he and said? That was part of the reason that, was part of the reason that uh, we became friends because he kind of stood back for a moment. It's like, okay, it's actually a person of conviction. So we will never agree on politics for the rest of our lives. Probably not. <laughs> and, we were in, and we were in rival fraternities, but we actually became very close friends after that. Um, did your fraternity brothers appreciate the fact that you had signed up? Yeah, because I kind of came from like the drunk meathead fraternity, and we had uh, a bunch of guys who had left to become Marine pilots or Marine special, uh, special operators okay, and good. aviators, and uh, a couple of guys had gone in the Army. So we'd had kind of a loose history with some folks going into the military. Um, you know, some folks that had, had gone on to have some pretty amazing careers out of, out of American university as well. So, um, they were encouraging except for when I had PT at 5am and we'd have a party and I'd go to bed at like two o'clock and I'd wake up, I'd throw on, you know, uh, my PT gear and I'd walk at like four 30 in the morning towards the front door. And they'd be waiting up on the couches, hysterically laughing with beers as I'm walking out there in <laughs> army short shorts, like an asshole. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> There was more than one occasion where they're like, hey, you're still buzzed. Have a beer and don't go to PT. So I got in a shitload of trouble for that. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, honestly, you know, I, I did ROTC, but, you know, we had PT, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays. And yeah. it didn't break. There were no fraternities at the school I went to at Loyola okay. in Maryland. But that didn't, oh, okay. that didn't prohibit us from drinking until, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Um, and, and I got to tell you, honestly, I went to more active duty formations stinking of booze than I ever did in college for some reason. I don't know why. Agreed. Uh, yeah, I, it just it, it seemed to fit my lifestyle. It's like at least in college, like there was a goal of either going out again the next night or yeah. trying to meet a girl or something like I, I actually physically had to take a test to leave college. You know, sure, sure. once you got back to duty, I didn't have to do anything but go to work. And I was a lieutenant, so it didn't matter anyway. Like everybody did everything around me because they thought I was a moron regardless. So uh, I ended up drinking a lot more as a lieutenant than, than I did in college. But anyway, I digress. Uh, better camaraderie. or I shouldn't say better. Compare the camaraderie of yep. the frat house to the military unit. Similar, different, how? Um, it's very similar in the sense that you have that, you know, that bonding, especially in a war zone, you know, with, uh, yeah. with brothers and sisters in arms in that case. I mean, the main difference, obviously, I had women that were uh, that were in my unit where fraternity was all men. And so um, having that bond uh, with a couple, because we had a couple of girls in our detachment as well, which is not, you know, normal on the tactical side, or it wasn't at the time because it had really been all men. But our detachment sergeant was a woman. She was on track to make first sergeant and our First Sergeant, Battalion Sergeant Major at the time were like, listen, we need to get with the times. Women are being promoted up through ranks. You can't expect her to take control of a tactical company if she hasn't had a detachment. So we had a female detachment NCO and an ops NCO and, um, and actually a couple on teams during that deployment as well. So that was cool being able to see the uh, the integrated mixed unit there, um, you know, really in a tactical perspective out. So that I didn't get in the fraternity. Um, and I think a little bit more, uh, obviously, responsibility and sense of, uh, of service on the uh, – on the military side, because there's some sure. fraternities and sororities that are all about, you know, service and service oriented. We were more about uh, trying to empty the local liquor stores. 
Yeah, well, that's, that's why you do it, um, obviously. Um, if, if you haven't rolled a keg down the middle of the street in front of your frat house, you're not living. Have you really done it then? Are you really in a frat? Um, so, okay, uh, all that aside, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, clearly you have – how do I put this delicately without – okay, I'll just put it my way. Clearly you have a mental advantage over everybody else in the military at this point in time. Like you're college educated. You obviously were a smart guy. You got a freaking scholarship to American University of all places. So you're no dummy comparatively speaking and not to denigrate most private to enlist in the military. But again, some of these kids come from very rural areas. They don't have the best education. Sure. They don't have the best opportunities for education, all those things. As you start to make your way through the military – I was sort of the same way and combine yeah. that with the wise ass from New York. You know, it was one of those things where I tell people routinely, I wish I would, I, I wish I could go back and do my lieutenant time over again and not be such a know-it-all pompous jerk. Um, because yes. it, it certainly limited me in my ability to be a leader and limited me in the things I wanted to, I should have been able to do or opened my experience, my aperture of experiences to be able to do. Right. Like I always felt like I was the smartest person in the room when I was lieutenant. Some of that's because I'm 22 and full of piss and vinegar, but some of that's just sure. because generally there is, there are, there are, there are clear education levels in the military. I say sure. all this not to toot my own horn, but to say no, for you, because, and, and your, your career path, both military and civilian backs this up that, you know, you probably were one of the smartest guys in the room. How do you sort of separate that from knowing that a lot of this stuff initially feels like it's beneath your intelligence level or your, not intelligence, it's beneath your skill level because you're smart enough to get through it, right? Um, how do you reconcile all of that um, combined with the fact that, you know, you want to serve, but it's like you're trying to find this niche where you fit in to serve? Sure. I mean, throughout my combined military and civilian career in the national security space, which I'll kinda, I kind of look at as one because I was a reservist and you know only mobilized for deployment. Otherwise, I was in a civilian capacity of sorts, like kind of like Forrest Gump stumbling through historical events. I had no business being involved with. So some of it was kind of dumb luck and placement. And I think the other, I mean, the difference was I didn't commission, right? So the, uh, I mean, the cultural aspect of the military and the customs and courtesies and having to, you know, can't you can't be that wise ass you know smartest guy in the room want to be in a group one full of very intelligent officers that I'd worked with, but as a uh, <coughs> excuse me as a psyop NCO, I had led a team and my battalion commander I was assigned to in Iraq the first time I was mobilized was Al Schaffner he picked up two stars afterwards um, he was our battalion commander um, him and I got on very very well during that deployment and um, so I was in charge of the team but I was also the IO officer you know acting officer for the for the battalion there because it wasn't a real position but they kind of created one uh, alongside a lieutenant named Joe Carrier who was just fantastic he was their uh, their chemo and so uh, I was basically on the battalion staff so I was in the battalion staff meetings with all of them at the same time I was going out on patrol and so I kind of bridged both worlds and kind of serving in a, at a battalion staff level at the same time which was odd you know it's not normal so I'm out patrolling with the different companies during the day um, and it was really good because I was green as shit. I mean, I was a reservist. I'd seen no combat. Um, and the 82nd at that point, uh, that area, we were in the part of Baghdad that bordered Sadr City. It was Adamiya and um, uh, that, that north side of uh, Baghdad where there had been a lot of violence in 06, yeah. 07. You know, yeah, yeah. And um, then, uh, you know, we came in 08 while well, the surge was still going on. But the 82nd ripped out. So they kind of gave me a crash course in soldiering as a reservist, which is like, that's cute. I'm glad you've got your drill time and you went to your, your training and everything else. Let us explain <laughs> you how this actually works, um, you know, which was awesome. So that gave me that gave me the crash course I needed. And I was very fortunate that, that happened because uh, at that point there was really we hadn't seen any combat. Um, they didn't sustain any casualties the entire time they were there. Were a couple of wounded uh, guys. I mean, literally like one or two. It was not many during that whole tour. 
a um, couple of incidents. But anyway, so they left. And then all of a sudden in um, on April Fool's Day in 2008, um, Muqtada al-Sadr had had enough of uh, Maliki arresting a lot of the low-level Sadrist politicians right before the elections were coming out. And so there was a huge uprising in Basra in the south amongst the Shia and then also in Sadr City. And that had been off limits to U.S. forces for three years because it was the political base of, of Prime Minister Maliki. So literally there were no U.S. forces on the ground in that slum, which is a, you know, a, a physical square, grid square, yep. uh, making up on the uh, the east side of the river in Baghdad. <clears throat> so they had years to stockpile weapons and EFPs and all kinds of nonsense. And so we went from butterflies and bees, essentially, with, you know, visiting markets and good news storyboards to – Okay, guys, it's a full blown like swing slugfest. So they overran the Iraqi army checkpoints, started killing Iraqi army soldiers, police officers, and what was a company sized combat outpost at the the Joint Security Station, the the uh, Tharal one, the uh, the Iraqi police station in Sadr City, all of a sudden became home to a brigade plus of almost entirely armor at that point because of the EFP threat was so bad. They were taken out M1 Abrams tanks that were getting dragged back, completely you know destroyed. Uh, MRAPs, you name it. Uh, at that point, they banned all Humvees from operating. And so I went from, you know, War Eagle was the base on the north side. Uh, and then we got sent into basically to Sadr City to augment uh, the teams that were there. So that ended up being about six weeks of block to block fighting, um, you know, in one aspect or another. And uh, I was assigned to support uh, uh, 2nd SCR, who was there, 2nd Striker Cavalry Regiment. They'd fall under 3rd Brigade, 4th ID. So it was Lieutenant Colonel Dan Barnett. Uh, working for Colonel John Hort, who had been the 3-4 commander, and then Major General uh, Jeff Hammond at the time was the CG. Um, so that was the sort of chain of command. And then uh, also had uh, been attached, I guess, the 25th had sent some striker units in as well, uh, in addition to 3rd ID armor that augmented from different parts. So that was kind of who I supported at that point during the fight. Okay, so uh, you're in Baghdad now. It's 2008, you said, when you got there. Yep, um, from a PSYOP standpoint, I'm curious, you know, uh, Given that mission, and yeah. Sadr City was the one place I, I left Baghdad in the middle of 06, but as things ramped up in the beginning of 06, like that was the one place I literally was scared shitless to go. Like, Fallujah oh, and Ramadi yeah. were bad and they made my stomach queasy, but I wanted yeah. no. The times that I got stuck in the city, even near Sadr City, yeah. is when my, my, you know what, really puckered up because I'm like, oh, we're just way too close and there's too many people here that are just, you know, going to make life sure. bad for us. Like, that was the area that I, I wanted no part of, full disclosure. I mean, yeah, I'd say it. I was sure of it. I didn't want to go there. Um, but that said, you know, when it comes to that whole area and PSYOPs as opposed to targeting sure. and finding sure. bad guys, where where how much integration are you into that or are you still doing – Hearts and minds and still looking for, you know, supporters or, or, you know, people who are going to help the cause kind of deal. Uh, I mean, kind of. So at that point, it transitioned more to support for tactical operations that were on the ground. Yes, there was some support for operational strategic objectives, um, whether that be going after some of the Iranian-backed militants. I'll kind of hit that in a second. Senior leadership. But it was also helping support on the intelligence side. Uh, we actually stood up the first what was called radio in a box. We we uh, it was I got a crash course in radio wave frequency. So having to set up the uh, the portable radio station on top of the roof of the JSS at the time, and then not realizing that the length of the antenna actually then cor- correlates or corresponds to the length of the radio wave. And when you tune a radio to that, that's what you actually end up tuning into is that wavelength. So I had to go through all that crash course reading in the uh, on the roof because I'd never actually seen one, let alone put it together. 
And I actually remember I called the cell phone number for help that was on there, not knowing it was a cell phone. And I got some major at the Pentagon who answered the phone. And he's like, uh, hello, this is Major So-and-so. I was like, hey, yeah, I'm in, uh, I'm in Baghdad. I'm in, uh, in Sadr City. And my, my, my detachment commander is next to me, like smacking me for upset. Like, shut up. Don't tell him where you are. And the guy on the other side of the phone is like, well, what do you need? I'm like, I don't know. I got your number. It's here in the manual for this radio in a box. He goes, oh, fuck. <laughs> you could tell he was not ready for that phone call to come in. So he was like three degrees below useless. I hang up the phone. I'm like, Christ, this is going to be a shit show. And so we basically started broadcasting music because everything was shut down. And the only thing people had was radios at home. So we started playing popular music at the time to get people to tune in. And then we would put in tips numbers and we would basically start putting out information about what was going on and why they were screwing up the area and like the militants, the damage that they were doing and what was happening. Uh, And that was, so that was like more on the radio that we set up. And in addition to that, we would go out on these 12 to 18 hour patrols, which were really not that. I mean, it it turned into the, for the first time I saw like a real line of advance, which was route gold and about the Southern third of Sadr city. There were T walls that were getting put across it uh, by uh, armored cranes. It was the most insane thing I've ever seen. 110 degree heat. These poor bastards are in full body armor inside a giant, up-armored crane as they're literally swinging these T-walls and putting them in place. And then the militia members were taking pot shots at everybody doing that or planting EFPs and IEDs along the route. And we would get maybe a hundred yards in a 12 to 18 hour shift. So while we were up there, all the civilians had cleared the battlefield. The only people that were there at that point were militants. So, I mean, if it, if it moved, it died at that point, which was just kind of, well, it's almost a relief though, right? Yeah. I mean, for for the civilians listening, I mean, in urban warfare, you know, Everybody dresses the same. You don't know. There aren't bad guys running around letting everybody know, hey, I'm the bad guy, and that's a civilian. It's not a video game. Uh, They all look the same. And so uh, at that point, when we had gotten to civilian casualties mounting and it being a thing in the media and everything else, you almost were created. And we were so hampered, so, so hampered in our operational capability and tactical ability by civilian casualties and collateral damage and everything that – when you get into that scenario where you know all the civilians are out, it, it removes any guesswork. It, it did. Because, I mean, prior to that with the 82nd, if you fired a shot in anger at that point uh, oh, you, towards anyone, you were right it was an automatic 15-6. Yeah, automatic 15-6 right investigation yep. was launched to make sure it was clean shoot. But by the yep. time that fight happened, rules of engagement had completely changed because civilians were off the battlefield. And we were cleared hot to engage without, you know, these 65 layers of approval. And so it ended up being real, you know, shooting block to block. We had a, a number of guys killed and wounded that were out there with um, – and again, for reservists who hadn't seen anything at this point, I mean, um, it's the third battle scene, American Sniper. And I didn't know anything about, you know, Chris Kyle or those guys. The only reason that I knew that the SEAL team was there is I had actually somebody had a bunch of hollow point bullets in the back of my truck, which were illegal under, uh, you know, um, international yeah. law. Yeah, basically yeah. you can't do that. So the, the SEAL team had showed up. There had been two Army Special Forces teams that were there doing counter sniper operations. They they'd rotate out, and now the SEAL team showed up, or a platoon of SEALs, which ended up being Chris Kyle's uh, uh, platoon, which I, I didn't know at the time. <clears throat> and there was this big E-7 who had been a uh, SEAL, who had been a prior service enlisted 82nd paratrooper. And so they left him as the liaison to the jock because he spoke Army in their, in their words. So anyway, I remember giving him you know the bullets when I got back from this mission. But the reason that I raised that, just because I think some people probably have seen the movie, uh, you know, I'd been uh, as a team commander, I'm sitting in the, in the uh, passenger seat and I've got a gunner up top on this MRAP that we swapped out in the middle of the fight. We'd go to Taji to go get new vehicles. So anyway, he'd been up there for like 12 hours on the front uh, in route gold. I was like, look, come down, get some rest. It's time for you to rotate out. I'll sit up in the gun for a while. We get some sleep <clears throat> about two hours. There's two guys that start walking down towards us. You know, they're crouching and they've got weapons. I'm like, Oh, shit. So rack the 240 and I'm getting ready to open up and. 
just one dude down. And then the second guy is down. And I'm like, who the fuck is doing the shooting? And I'm looking around. Uh, and then we come to find out it's the, the seals that were there, uh, that were providing uh, sniper overwatch for all of us on the line. And so now I'm looking over the T wall cause I'm on top of this giant MRAP and the two guys are down. Then somebody tries to come recover the weapons there cause they were going to engage. So those two get shot and they go down. Um, and by the end of the day, between people trying to bring in, you know, bombs and picking up the guns and bringing more weapons, trying to get into the building that was providing the oversight to shoot at us. He had stacked 60 people that day Holy and having no idea it was Chris Kyle. So we get back. I didn't actually, I would have had no idea if his book didn't come out. And then the ran ran study that, that showed, you know, that was their unit. And that was awesome. We were all there. Would have had no idea. And I never met him. Don't know anything about, you know, the whole thing in the movie, the legend. There was, there was no rumors flying around. Nobody, nobody knew the hell he was at that point. Um, but I remember getting back and I saw that E7 and I handed him bullets and started saying, oh, how did it go today? I was like, oh, I was out there on the line. It was crazy. You know, when one of your guys was shooting, it's like, yeah, man, I'm calling it back into Coronado. They wait till they hear about this. It's 60 guys. And it, so that's actually in uh, in Kyle's book. Um, mm-hmm. But that was the first time I ever yeah. had to engage a target was during that day as well. And that was uh, that was just a fucking bizarre experience for, you know, a kid from New York City. Uh, two liberal physician parents who did not want you to join the military. I spent a year in the Catholic seminary in high school, discovered women and that quickly ended that quest. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but it was just emotionally, it was very, it was tough for me to kind of to process because both the, the, the first time I had to engage, it was two targets. They were yeah. both within less than a hundred yards right across the road in the buildings across from the, the T walls that were getting built, had a weapon. They were getting ready to shoot at our guys. And so it was a clean shoot. There were no civilians. Um, but I still, I remember after that day, you get back and you kind of get a pat on the back, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, combat action badge or medals or whatever the d- discussion is, you get a pat- and then go to lunch. Like, that's not a normal experience, right, to have something like that happen. And I remember kind of walking away and just sat down and I'm like, there's something wrong with me. I don't feel bad about what I just did. Like, what kind of what kind of fucked up person doesn't feel bad about this? There's something wrong with me. And that's that actually scared the shit out of me. So I'd had an Iraqi cell phone. I mean, that's uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but no, please go ahead. my my experience was incredibly similar and be, we have uh strangely enough coincidentally very similar backgrounds you know italian yeah. catholic kid from new york you know wise ass like yourself and yeah. uh you know grew up with two i didn't grow, I grew up with two very conservative parents um you know but my combat experience was very similar in the sense that i'll never forget uh you know we had gotten ambushed from a, a mosque on the side of the road where we were waiting for an ied uh, yeah. a, the iraqi eod team to come out and remove an ied and there was three of them in the road and we had been waiting there for hours it was like, more like an hour and uh long story short you know we end up because we're sitting there so long getting ambushed and i remember the same thing and i just remember saying to myself pid pid like positively identify a target right and as soon as you do yeah. let it loose and I remember looking down the barrel and looking down at the iron sight. I, we, we didn't have, you know, the guard didn't have fancy, you know, uh, sights. We just had to use the old iron stuff, which I was I actually, my own. <laughs> I was actually more comfortable with regardless. But it's the same thing. And I kept remember thinking that I was going to look like the range where you just see the target fall, where you see yeah. the target fall. And it doesn't. Um, it's, no. it's a collapse. It's not like a steady fall. And it almost is like it disappears. And, yes. uh, and it was the same thing. And... I had those same thoughts, like, should I feel bad about this? Should I feel bad? And I always just reconciled as very simply as, if it wasn't him, then it was either me or somebody else close to me, and that decision is easy. That's yeah, how I just reconciled it. And that's how I did it as well, but, I mean, it took me a bit to get there. I remember I, I literally called my mother. I don't know what the hell came over me, but, I mean, I called my mother. I was like, listen, 
I had a rough day. This just, I'm not feeling right about what happened in the sense that I, I should feel bad. So she's like, Christ, I knew this day was going to come. That's the dramatic Italian mother. So she, you know, we hang up and then she spoke to a friend of hers who, uh, she got her PhD like 60 years ago, well before a lot of women were, you know, getting doctorates in, in, the, in the industry or in the career field. And uh, she's a uh, well-renowned, world-renowned uh, Freudian psychologist who's done a lot of work with uh, the NYPD for a lot of cops mm-hmm. who have engaged in, in, uh, in shootings. Can you send her my way after this just for GP? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, love thanks. to send her. Yeah, she's, a, she's a sweetheart. I'm, I'm, I'm so in one of those spots. <laughs> <laughs> I got so a lot she, to work uh, through. <laughs> yeah. She told my mother, I guess, at that point, you know, call him back and tell him, like, look, um, it's actually okay. Um, feeling, Recognizing that you don't feel bad about this and, and like feeling uncomfortable about it is a perfectly normal feeling. Um, and basically if you didn't feel bad at all and didn't, and didn't notice that you didn't feel bad and were just perfectly comfortable doing what you had done, she's like, that's more evidence of like sociopathy as opposed to, you know, there's still that feeling of guilt, even if you know you did the right thing, because as you mentioned, right, like it was, you, you know, it's going to be you or the guys in that case, they weren't aiming at me. It would have been guys that were on the line. Um, you can mentally justify it, but if you take sort of pleasure in it or, you know, like you don't really feel bad, that's where it gets a little dicey. Uh, and that's where I'm in. I'm not a, uh, a clinician, so I'm not going to you know, speak any more broadly. But at least that's what was communicated back to me. Right. Everybody will speak to their own you know, health care uh, providers at that point. Also, at that point, I, I had seen enough evil that yeah. there was a, a level of just I mean, you know, Iraqi soldiers I had worked with, um, you know, I, I saw pictures of, of drill bits being drilled into their body by. You know, bad dudes. I, I had seen yep. enough, you know, Man. IED explosions and what it did and, and you know, the level of, of lack of humanity um, and the depravity yep. of war that at that yep. point in time, it was, you know, I, I didn't get emotional, but I had to have that mental conversation with myself. And I had to put it in a, in a box where I could rationalize it, justify it and be OK with it and put my head on the pillow at night. Um, and, and, you know, I don't... It, I've never really told this story on the show ever now that I sure. think about it, but you know, I don't, I don't ever boast about it. Right. Like I, my, my nephew, I was home in New York. My nephew asked me, uh, did you ever kill anybody? You know, uh, and you question. yeah. And, and I just chuckled at it and you know, I, I give the sin, look, war is bad and, and you know, nobody wants to go to war and, and, and left it at that. But you know, it's not like it's anything that I'm, I'm running around celebrating. It just, it's part of my combat experience and I have to recognize it for what it is uh, and, and hope that uh, my combat experience, you know, doesn't end up defining me down the road. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. I think um, in that regard, the, the only time that I'll really kind of talk about it or I bring it up publicly because I usually don't, you know, get into that either is like when I see these mass shootings, especially when people are like, how could somebody do this? And I try to explain my book as a, as a somewhat normal person, God bless so loft. Um, when you go through all this, um, <laughs> better living through chemistry. Um, you know, when, when you have that unfortunate experience of taking another human life, how awful it is. And that's with somebody who's armed, who's going to take out one of your guys, you know, as you and I were just talking about how that unnatural feeling, you still have to reconcile with yourself to voluntarily go walk into a classroom with, to go shoot a bunch of unarmed children. I can't, I still mentally having been in a position like you have of, of having to fire a shot towards a target. Um, I can't get myself in a mental space to understand how somebody could do that. And so that's the only time I'll kind of talk about it in that context to try to give people some, you know, um, perspective yeah. of somebody who's been there. Like this is yeah. not normal. And you know, it's, you know, it's you know, it's weird too. Is that uh, you know, I, I I live in Georgia. I, I own a weapon in the home, and I only keep it in the home. Like I, I, even though I have all the permits and everything to carry it wherever the hell I want, and I'm I'm trained on it and everything else, I yeah. never I I don't carry it. And I say that only because you know I always wonder if I would react the same in a home invasion. And I know, but there's there's a sense of 
enemy versus enemy foreigner versus enemy American. And there's a part of me yeah. that's like, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's just weird to me. I, I, I have these mental conversations with myself and try to justify yeah. why that's different. And, and some people would argue it's not, you know, some people would argue that the guy 200 meters away from me that I, 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 I shouldn't say 200, it's more like 100. But anyway, um, sure. you know, that I took out, it really wasn't a threat to me or anybody else because of the distance. And no. this guy's in my house. We, you can have all these rational conversations. The bottom line is, I think when, when you start to do this, you have to remember the context of everything that it's in, right? And, and no. removing it from that context and placing it in a vacuum and asking, is this okay? Is a dangerous equation, uh, especially when you remove the human emotion from it, especially when you move the personal no. emotion from it, and you remove the idea... That, that is a task. There is a job involved in doing that <clears throat> and a greater good involved in doing that that you can't take away to just place it in a situation where you go, bad guy, good guy, good guy, kill bad sure. guy, and that's good or yeah. bad, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I went through, so I did that, and then we did, that was about six weeks of fighting, kind of block to block, going back and forth. Michael Gordon from the New York Times was embedded with us. He's now at the Wall Street Journal, you know, well-renowned military correspondent, and his Photographer Joao Silva, who stepped on a landmine a year later in Afghanistan, lost both of his legs below the knee. I mean, the guy was fearless, was walking back backwards through firefights while we were on patrol in, in Sadr City, just snapping pictures, didn't give two shits, was yelling at the Iraqi soldier who had gotten like a, a ricochet off the leg that like scraped his knee to stop, quote, stop being a little bitch. <laughs> so I told him to keep walking. <laughs> so these guys were great, but I had lied to my mother at this point and told her I had a desk job in Kuwait. And uh, I ended up on the front page of the New York Times on the cover in the middle of this firefight, kind of walking the shit's burning around me and then like, you can see kids in the distance kind of in the background as we're about to engage in this firefight uh my fiance at the time um was a was an auditor with kpmg she was in dallas the dallas cowboys were her client my mother's in new york at the hospital the two of them pick up the new york times and uh they were just absolutely friggin' livid as you can imagine at this point because i wasn't exactly truthful about what's going on so i kind of warned them ahead of time i was like hey just you know you know you may see a couple of things um you know but then i picked up an iraqi cell phone so i mean there were a couple of times you know, were getting you know walking in mortars i was like hey i gotta go you know they hear the explosion in the background of that kind of nonsense so we didn't have food but i had a functioning iraqi cell phone i charged in the car and uh you know, a lot of the guys, oh, my God, we can't get any fresh food here. I'm like, dude, the Jamila market's six blocks from here. Sixty percent of the food in, in Baghdad and 40 percent of the country come through here. So come here, come here, little Iraqi kid. I went and withdrew some pay in Iraqi dinars when I was up at uh, yep. up at Taji for a refit. And then so they're coming back with fresh watermelon and food. And they, they looked at me, the rest of the guys, like I was like the Oracle of Omaha. I'm like, guys, this is not anything special here. So <laughs> all I did so, was give an eight-year-old $10 for a yeah. food run. <laughs> yeah. So this nonsense is going on. And then we ended up occupying a school building on the north side to kind of lock it down. And yeah, there's plenty of, uh, you know, combat and the action stuff that took place there. But um, that was that was the first time I'd really seen people shot and blown up and, and, and dying at that point, which was, uh, so it was my first real taste of combat. So that, that all lasted about six weeks or so. Let me ask you real quick about your fellow reserve unit guys, all I assume yeah. New Yorkers who are at least or in that area. Uh, guys, uh, who- no, okay. No, so the, the unit was actually, uh, so I was in, uh, when I enlisted, I was an American university in DC. So okay, my reserve right. so unit was actually, unit. yeah, it was, it's based right next to Andrews air force base. There's an army reserve center. I, I guess what I was, regardless what I was driving at yeah. was, you know, were, were a bunch of these young kids as green as you were, were they kind of experiencing the same emotions as you were going through? Or were, <laughs> were you with some more grizzled guys who had, had, had some experiences already? I'm laughing that you mentioned it because I was made the team leader, but the assistant team leader had actually been an invasion vet. So he had seen combat before and was on the invasion. My unit had been assigned to the 1st Marine Division. They were the first ones to be awarded Marine Corps combat patches since World War II. So they they saw a decent amount of stuff. But 
I mean, if I was a consummate wise ass, he was a professional. And so there were some questions about whether or not he would make a good fit with the, especially with the 82nd. So he got made the number two, even though I, I didn't have any experience. So he was good about it. Uh, and, you know, we were the same rank. So we just kind of, you know, we rolled through it, but he had some experience. Um, and it did, it did help the first time uh, that, you know, we, we engaged the first time we were shot. I mean, cause you know, the difference between being in a, in a general firefight, right. And when someone's actually shooting at you, I mean, you've been there, anybody who's in combat has been there. I didn't, I mean, I hadn't experienced it. We're up on the rooftop. So we're, so we're occupying this building, this school now north in the, uh, in Sutter city and the militants were kind of hiding. So I said to the, the, uh, uh, at that point, the platoon sergeant, I was like, listen, let me go up to the roof. I'll take the speaker and my, uh, my interpreter with me. Let me taunt these clowns and see if they'll come out and fight. Cause they're all, you know, angry and very prideful. He's like, yeah, go ahead. You know, see what you can do. So we get up on the roof and I remember the interpreter, I'm like, listen, do not piss off the civilian population, but do, but I want you to write something that you know is going to piss off just the insurgents that are here. And I had another interpreter check it. And they came back with something ridiculous that was like, um, you know, you're, uh, you're like a donkey and your mother has knots in her beard or something ridiculous. I mean, it was just so, so absolutely ridiculous. They're like, so second grade, man. Yeah. Second grade is like you guys are a bunch of little bitches firing your rockets from afar and your roadside bombs come out and fight like men, you're pathetic cowards. And so all of a sudden, the local mosque now, like a quarter mile away, starts blaring in response after 10 minutes of this. And it was like, rise up, sons of Sadr, rise up, militants, go kill the Americans. I'm like, as the the interpreter next to me is translating what they're saying, I'm like, oh, fuck. (laughs) So, (laughs) and now I've created like a bullet magnet, like a moron. I've seen no combat at this point. And you know, that shitty Iraqi construction. Mm -hmm. So we're on the rooftop and it sounded like like that sucking noise is coming by as their shots. And that's, I had no experience what I'm doing. And that's when my assistant team there was like, dude, that they're fucking shooting us. Get down. So I laid down. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm being shot at. I'm laying flat on my back. And they've got like a little 18 inch ledge from the, uh, the Iraqi bricks on the roof. And there's tracer rounds kind of going over the top. And that was the first time I saw any combat. I'm like, wow, this fucking sucks, mm. you know, <laughs> going through this. And it's hitting the brick sound. And the only thing that I can try to, the only sound that I can equate that to that I've ever heard similar, I know this could be crazy. And younger younger people listening probably won't even know what it is in terms of like cracking a CD in half. If you've ever cracked a CD in half, that, little, that sound yep, is that exactly air, what it sounded like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, when a bullet would ricochet off the pavement or off a brick. It's the only time I've heard anything similar to that. So that was the first time I had ever been been shot at at that point. That, and, just out of curiosity, I hear you tell this whole story. I picture you laying there and the bullets and the red tracer lines going over your head, and you're going, "Damn you, Pat! You're such a jerk!" You know the guy who dared you to join, right? Like, I mean, did he ever come into your mind and go, "Oh, f you, Pat! Man, you suck!" I, mean, I was so pissed at this point of laying down. I'm like, "This fucking sucks." <laughs> um, but we also the CG for the for the uh, fourth idea at that point was also a pain in the ass. So. He, he was adamant that we needed to go put wanted posters up on the T-walls. So we had a nail gun with like literally 22 caliber cartridges without bullets that would fire this nail gun. Uh, and they started making metal wanted posters that we could then uh, uh, bolt into the uh, or nail gun into the uh, concrete T-walls on the front line. So I'm like, let me get this straight. All the civilians are gone. You want us to go up there and go put up these goddamn wanted posters when there's nothing but insurgents that are up there at this point, because the CG wants it done. And the answer was yes. So that was its own shit show. They stacked all these metal signs at the company headquarters in Baghdad, and they got a Blackhawk to come deliver it. Sure enough, the rotor wash and the Blackhawks lifted this metal sign through the air and it actually pierced the side of the Blackhawk when it went through. So that was its own shit show. They had to strap it down. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of nonsense goes on. And, um, you know, General Hammond came in and at one point where we've got the JSS Sauter City is on the northernmost line of advance on Route Gold and the main uh, MSR there, right as it leads you into the circle uh, to the south. 
And they were surrounded by like four or five, six, 12, 15 story buildings on that line. It's like the tallest buildings in the area. And it's a one story JSS. I mean, just complete, like the, the worst tactical position you can go in. It made no fucking sense whatsoever. So we lost a couple of guys as a result of that. Um, just really piss poor decision making. The, uh, the company commander there at the time. Did that frustrate you? you? It did. It frustrated us because it didn't make any sense from a tactical, operational, strategic standpoint. It made absolutely no sense. You can still occupy and hold the area without that particular building. And it just, I mean, they were like, oh, yeah, we'll just put up some RPG netting. Like, what, and you sound like a home decorator. What the fuck are you talking about? We're in the middle of a firefight. Yeah. So uh, the company commander at that time is a guy named Logan Veith from the 25th. Um, you know, he, he, I think he received two bronze stars for Valor during the fight when I was there with him. Uh, just a, a hell of a man and a hell of a leader. And he was pissed. He followed orders because it's what he had to do. But I remember we, we looked at each other. I was just, what the fuck is this now? Why are we doing yeah, this? Well, again, I can't, uh, I can't tell, you, tell me how many times that happened. I, I was thankful, at least in <clears throat> my first deployment in, in the special ops community, that there weren't really any stupidity like that. Like common sense always prevailed. And what sure. provided you the best uh, you know, tactical edge uh, and, and operational security from the standpoint yeah. of what gave you the best cover is always what we did, right? Like there was never any of that, yeah. but there were plenty of, of, you know, hijinks along the way throughout my career. Of, of sure. stupid. I mean, uh, listen, we've interviewed a half dozen, a dozen guys from cop Keating. And I, I say the same thing over oh, yeah. and over again, who the hell thought that this was a good place to put a base, you know, like it literally yeah. just was a complete tactical disadvantage. And you, you, all you had to do was be a first year ROTC student to know this wasn't going to work. And yet somebody did it anyway. <laughs> I had that same conversation with Jake Tapper last week because we were talking about his uh, – because he helped do the documentary yep, and stuff. Yep. And it was literally having that conversation. But So that nonsense goes on for about six weeks, right? The fighting goes on, and then it kind of dies down, and there's this, uh, you know, Sodder's bit. Well, let's just agree to be friends. Yeah, after you got your ass handed to you. So during the course of that, we had sandstorms that came in and, I mean, woke up, you know, rats crawling across the top of you. Um, I remember I the closest thing, we came, yeah. Yeah, closest thing we came to a toilet is somebody who was smart enough to punch out the center of a uh, – of a lawn chair that they then plastic lawn chair that they'd found somewhere and stuck it over the top of a hole in the building. Um, you know, shit sucking trucks didn't want to show up in 120 degree heat. So you open the door to the porta potty and there's uh, you know, what somebody must've thought was Renaissance art now protruding from the, uh, the center of the bowl <laughs> as you're standing there on the edges. So it was just, you know, hellacious nonsense. So after all that shit ends, I then get brought back to the company headquarters in uh, <clears throat> up at uh, the, at the division at this point, the special troops battalion, because it was the surge and there were units there that were getting brought in. It was the very end of the surge where the last units were coming in and they didn't have enough PSYOP detachments to support all the different brigades that had been brought in. So there's one detachment per brigade. So they took the company XO, who's a captain, because it's the it's, you know, it's a special operations rank structure for command. So it's a major in command and a, and a captain is the XO. So the XO and the and the OPSENCIO was an E7, uh, basically got tasked to be the leadership of this new detachment. They stole, you know, a body from, you know, one just about everywhere from each of the detachments to create another detachment to go out. But that now left a void at the headquarters. So the first sergeant was like, listen, um, you know, you've been to college, you and the CO get along. Um, you're only an E5, but why don't you take over as the company ops on CO? We'll bring you up here and you can you can run that. I'm like, sure. I don't know what the hell that, that entails, but I'll figure it out. And then the CO was like, well, we don't have the XO either. He's like, so you're going to perform the duties of the XO as an E5. And so the first, yeah, that was also bizarre. So now, um, you know, the company ops NCO is an E5, but performing the duties of the XO as well, to the extent you can as an NCO, as a non-commissioned officer. But it was weird. You know, going to the battalion staff meetings, they'd have operations uh, meetings, particularly with the, uh, the battalion ops officer. And that's all the uh, uh, the company ops goes across the battalion. And then there's this random E5 kind of sitting at the table. So that, again, was another one of those moments where I was in a more senior position I should have been in. And uh it was great learning experience, but while I was up there, General Hammond got another itch and said, huh, well, if Sutter City is a denied territory, 
That's what we use leaflet drops for, right? Areas we don't want to go into. So all those Iranian militants who were there, because by the way, the Iranians were running the whole freaking thing. I mean, one day I woke up, you know, covered in dust. We go outside, the dust storm is over. We're on patrol, covered in shit. And there's, there are people shooting at us. And we're looking at one of the buildings and one of the, the machine guns, it was either an RPK or PKC, was glistening in the sun. And I look over and I'm like, what the fuck is that? I'm like, it's packing grease. Like they're brand new weapons. So I looked at one of the Iraqi soldiers who was there with our interpreter. And I'm like, do you have any idea, you know, what's going on where the weapons came from? Because those guys all had connections, the ones that were there. They were largely from the area. That's why they were brought in. Oh, uh, yes. Sandstorm came. And so the Iranians brought in weapons at nighttime because you guys can't fly your drones in the, uh, you know, with the sandstorm. I'm like, great. So brand new fucking weapons resupply. Thanks to the IRGC. We're awful. So yeah, they were basically directing the fight there at that point. So anyway, General Hammond said, you know what? We got to do these leaflet drops. So uh, they came to the, the company headquarters and um, the CEO was like, congratulations, um, this is your problem. So I ended up having to do 60 leaflet drops over 90 days, uh, basically hanging out of the side of a Black Hawk, dropping, shaking garbage bags full of leaflets over terrorist households at like 300 feet off the deck or 200 feet at like two o'clock in the morning, all in Sadr City. And so the, uh, it was always stacked with Apaches and a couple of Black Hawks that came in and uh it was like a joyride for the staff officers because they would come and everybody wanted, you know, from the division wanted to go out on a, you know, mission per se. Oh, of course, that was the, that was their long. chance right there. Oh my God! And the down. So they sent one night this Navy. That's 06 how people get killed doing dumb shit like that. Oh, absolutely, and that's almost what happened. One night. So this Navy 06 shows up one day. She's got to be about five foot two, ninety pounds, soaking wet. I don't know what the hell position she was in up there, uh, either from the, the core at that point, for, uh, you know, assigned to the Dupotif, or if it was at the division. Anyway, she shows up. I'm like, ma'am, you know, she's like, oh, I'd like to, you know, dump the bag. I'm like, okay, sure, not a problem. You know, whatever you'd like to do here, we're going to be in the door. This is where you sit because the rotor wash won't hit here. Make sure you shake low and then, you know, it'll just kind of disperse over the area. And so um, she had a little problem. She dropped the whole fucking bag, the entire garbage bag that had to weigh God knows what at this point, And it went right through the roof of one of the buildings below us. Oh. And I'm like, I can just picture the news the next day about how non-lethal fires actually killed somebody because they decided to drop leaflets through through a building. So thank God this didn't happen. Um, but yeah, that you was think like that family years. got the message. I think they, I think they got the message. Um, I think everybody got the message. We kept they dropped more leaflets on that tour than they had combined in the entire war. Um, C one thirty loads that were getting dropped by the Air Force that were coming out of Cutter. And when you're in PSYOP, what you do is there. So if you ever seen a leaf that's shaped like a dollar bill, right? And the reason that is, is it's auto rotating. So when it drops, it flips on the long end, end over end. And based on the wind patterns and where you drop, you can actually calculate the dispersal pattern to give you how many leaflets per square foot is going to hit when it lands. And the wind changes. I can't believe you actually went to school to learn that. Yeah. You had to go to school to learn it. That's unreal. And then you have to backwards plan, right? So where's the release point for the dispersal pattern with the winds to figure out where it's going to hit? You need like well, a you need like a leaflet caddy, like a golf caddy. We have, <laughs> wind coming in from the south from about ten miles an hour. You probably want to hit this thing to the right, and it's sloping down left. So, um, yeah, because the Air Force Opso uh, that uh, that decided to do the drop right before nine eleven, they pretty much are uh, they needed the help because I was still smoking cigarettes at that time. It's like. 10 30 11 o'clock at night i'm outside the company headquarters which was right next to the heli- uh, helipad uh the division headquarters for baghdad and i'm sitting on the picnic table out there feet on the on the seat and sitting on top of the table smoking and i see one of the uh the girls from the um the pdd the product development detachment they do all the design work and everything else she's flying down signal hill making circles i'm like what the hell is she running and she's like pointing up in the air and i'm looking and i'm like oh fuck me there is a ton of leaflets coming down. So the Air Force had miscalculated 
and they had dropped over the drop point as opposed to the release point. They, they did the wrong, the wrong coordinates. They covered Victory Base Camp in like 20,000 leaflets or something insane. <laughs> and this was the night of September 10th, and there was a massive September 11th ceremony the next day where the entire you know media was going to be there, everybody else. So now I had to go flying up to division headquarters and tell all of them, sorry, you got to wake up the entire special troops battalion now at like midnight. And every swinging dick has got to be out there picking up leaflets for the next four hours so this doesn't turn into a shit show the next day with the CG and the media, right? So you can imagine how unpopular we were. So after that happens, the uh, the division contracting officer comes down and he is furious. And I run into him like, hey, sir, what's going on? He goes, you fuck it, guys. I'm so tired of this. I'm like, whoa, I'm sorry. What happened? So first of all, they broke the printers. The Risograph printers for PSYOP are expensive. They overnighted new printers from Tokyo to keep up with the demand at a cost of like $180,000. This was insane. Like They never print this level of volume. We even ended up getting another division PSYOP company to help keep up printing with the volume because it was so ridiculous. So the contracting officer is like, let me get this straight. I'm paying for these goddamn printers. I'm paying for the ink. I'm paying for the paper. We're paying for the planes. We're dropping the shit. And now today I had to sign a multi-million dollar contract with a cleaning agency or some company to go clean up the shit in Sadr City because you guys are covering the, uh, you know, the area in, in leaflets. He's like, so this is like full cycle stupidity. He's like, he's spending millions of dollars all over the place. But the CG said, hey, this needs to be done. But to his credit, it worked. And so we had most yeah. of the Iranian militants fled back to Iran because we were shaking bags over leaflets. That's like... You know, hey, jackass number one, we know where you are and where you live. And they fled. So it worked. But, um, yeah, that was 60 out of 90 nights hanging out at Blackhawk. I mean, it's and I would say that, too. I was I was thinking that as you were talking. I mean, like giving the CG at the time the benefit of the doubt like that was yeah. the, the messaging part was huge. Like it was the only way we yeah. could literally communicate with them and yeah. try to find any semblance of separation between good guys and bad. And I mean, it 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 the way you explain it is exhausting and it was but it to was. your point like you said i mean it's uh and it made our lives a little bit it made combat operations more effective less dangerous and um as annoying as it sounds you know it's just we, we didn't have many other options at our disposal at that point other than just waxing everything in front of us killing them all like god sorting them out and it was funny. Like for all that combat that we saw, I uh, ended up receiving a bronze star, not for service and not for valor, but for impact on the battlefield it was as a result of those operations from the CG. So there's no recommender signatures. It's just the CG and it's for impact. It was the weirdest award I've ever received in my life. So nothing on the combat side except for a cab after all the you know the firefights we were in. And then I ended up with getting an award for fucking shaking garbage bags full of leaflets, which was its own ridiculous occurrence. Uh, I'm, I'm My head is spinning at this point. All right. So you'd stay there a whole year in, in Iraq, right? You do a year deployment? Just, just about. It was a year deployment, but with, with the training. So it was probably like 10 months in country. So we leave at the end of 08. You get back. We, do you feel like, okay, I, I did my job. I did my part. Oh, no. I loved it. There was something mentally wrong with me at that point. I was like, I'm not done. This is There's still too much shit to do. Uh, and I originally joined to go to Afghanistan after 9-11 as a New Yorker, and I ended up in Iraq. So while I was there, my... In PSYOP, I mean, the, the, so 90% of civil affairs in PSYOP are in the reserve. They're not on active duty. So while you're supposed to be a one in five you know, uh, mobilization, right. most of the PSYOP and civil affairs guys were once every other year, once every two years, you were getting mobilized to go deploy. So the reserve community was constantly moving. And for those of us in D.C., our battalion was like a feeder for First Information Operations Command at Fort Belvoir and for another, another couple of institutions that were there as contractors or as civilians. So while I was there on that tour, my, my CO had been, it was a, was a civilian contractor at the uh, at first IO command. And um, I actually applied for a job. And he's like, I don't know if you'll get it. He's like, 
you know, and they came back that I not only did I get the job, but they gave me like a ridiculous salary at this point, which was more than he was making. He was over my shoulder when the, uh, when the, the, uh, the letter came in and he was, cause he was working for one of the subcontractors. I went to the prime. So anyway, so I came back, uh, off that tour. I went over to first IO command very briefly and that, but Jido, uh, had paid for or provide the money for that team. It was supposed to be IO in support of counter IED, you know, like everything else related to Jido. And so they parked me out of the Jido Coic, which was Jido is what? Uh, Jido is the Joint IED Defeat Organization. So it was the uh-huh. okay DOD institution that was stood up after the CG in Baghdad in 2005. Basically, said, "Hey, this is a weapon of strategic influence." And quote, "I need a Manhattan-like project to combat this." So Jido was stood up with three lines of operation: uh, defeat the device, train the force, and attack the network. So um, while I was there, they basically created a team. Uh, it started out with 18 of us. There's now 120. Um, and they put us in pairs and uh, in, in groups of six. So six deployed, six home and support, six training up to go. And it was a mix of SF, SEALs, a um, uh, couple, couple of Rangers, uh, human collector CI guys, and then IO folks. And the, the, the sensitive integration office is what they called it at the time. And our job basically was to go help get all of this really crazy technology and stuff that had been, uh, you know, purchased by Jido for the services that then went out to the units and people were like, what do I do with this thing? Like I've read some brilliant scientists thought up this widget, whatever the hell it is, or the use of like deception or other things to kind of screw with the battlefield. And so we did that. So I went back to Iraq in 2010 at the special program shop. And then while I was there, uh, we used some of the tradecraft and skills that we were given and all access to some of these saps. Uh, to prevent an attack against then Vice President Biden because they hated him. His nickname in Iraqi dialectic Arabic was Bidan, which means like ballsack. Like they couldn't stand him because he advocated for breaking <laughs> the country up into three pieces. Like they more the only thing they hated more than each other was the prospect of breaking up the country. So anyway, we, we did some we did an operation. It was documented. There was feedback through second. I can't get into too many specifics, but basically, you know, it worked. The militants uh, thought it was too dangerous. They didn't launch the attack uh, during the uh, change of command ceremony when he was supposed to be there. Austin was there. Uh, SecDef was there, uh, Biden was there, uh, General Odierno was swapping out, and they were all crisscrossing the country making multiple stops, and it was public. So it was like, the, from an OPSEC perspective, it was a freaking nightmare. So while that had just happened, uh, a director from one of the SAP program offices at USDI came over to visit. I briefed him on the operations we were running, uh, and he said, hey, kid, are you looking for a job? And I'm like, yeah, okay, because the whole organization was GS-14s and 15s because it was highly sensitive, and I'm at this point like a 26-year-old kid, not even, was it 22, 25? And so um, I got back and sure shit after that uh, tour. And that, that tour was great. I mean, we were, it was basically coming up with creative ways to get the bomb makers to kill themselves or, or to, you know, kill them, subvert the supply chains, undermine it, basically everything we could do to, to uh, affect the IED problem set and using all of the sensitive tools. We had access to a huge suite of special access programs. So that was a great tour from a learning perspective as well, because then it gave me, in addition to PSYOP, right, it gave me deception, tech, um, subversion, sabotage, like a whole bunch of uh, skills that I really had um, as a reservist, right? And again, stumbling through history, like I said, like Forrest Gump, like no business being involved, but you know, sure enough, there I am. So I come home after that, and the USDI office called and said, hey, we are looking for somebody, will you apply? And I ended up getting the job. So this was a GS-14, I was 25 at the time, right? And while I'm there doing strategic intelligence operations programs, um, while I was there uh, in 2012, CENTCOM called and they said, hey, we've got a very sensitive national level operation needs to get run. There's only three of you guys we trust to do it. The other two just rotated out between Iraq and Afghanistan. We need you to go. I was finishing my last graduate school elective at Hopkins. Uh, we did a staff ride to the Battle of Normandy. So we were in the UK and we were in oh, France. Nice. 
fly home. So I, right. We purchased a townhouse at this point cause I'd gotten married in between and, uh, we we're supposed to move in like six months or four months later. Uh, but the new construction wasn't done yet. So we were going to move in by parents in Annapolis for the, for the summer and basically hang out there until the house was ready and then move in. And I had 72 hours notice where basically to say, Hey, I'm headed to Afghanistan. I really can't tell you more than that. I'm not sure exactly when I'm going to be back. Um, and just kind of deal with that. So that didn't, you can imagine how well that went over. Um, so oh. basically 72 hours later, I'm in Baghdad and I get dropped off with 17 PowerPoint slides, um, and effectively a $30 million budget, largely cash. And was, you know, give it a pat on the back. And they're like, Hey, don't fuck this up. Well, the, the target of the objective, what we're doing, I really can't get into, but they were basically like, if this doesn't go over well, what will happen is that the, uh, the Iranians are likely to retaliate and they're going to attack us positions in Iraq and Afghanistan. And if you don't get this operation completed to satisfy a partner, um, the retaliatory strikes could be 10,000 U S casualties, but, uh, good luck and don't fuck it up and have a good time while you're there. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. So, I went over with the staff director. We started in uh, in Balad, uh, excuse me, in uh, Bagram with the uh, both the task force and the Siege of Sodov guys. Quick briefing for just the commanders, the two of them, of us, what we were doing, and then he went home. And then I was basically dropped off in Kabul. I was 27, as uh, you know, at this point, uh, nowhere to live and nowhere to work. And so I ended up living in Green Village, is where I ended up uh, going in, in in Kabul at this point, and then bouncing between Kabul and Bagram and Herat. But uh, this was a national level special access program. There were literally like 10 people in the country right on to what the hell I was actually doing. So I reported to Major General McFarland, who at that point was the uh, Sean McFarland, who was the the uh, director of operations for ISAF as a two star. And, you know, I briefed he was briefed the seat General Allen at the time. He was briefed and then a couple other key general officers about what needed to happen. And he's like, so what are you going to do? I was like, well, I'm running this operation. I'm going to be living in Green Village. Technically, I'm assigned to you because I don't have a unit. I'm here as an individual. And he's like. Yeah, cool. Uh, what do you need? I'm like, well, I need to go to Bagram to go see the soft guys. I'm going to need to go out to Harad out west to go deal with some stuff. So, yeah, cool. All right, man. See you when you get back. I'm like, holy shit. I don't have a boss. Yeah, Sean was great. He, <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, I did. I'm saying that in jest because he was actually incredibly intelligent, but he gave me the, the room I needed to operate. And when I got up to Bagram and briefed at that point, it was Admiral Howe. I think he was the SOCPAC commander afterwards. He was a SEAL Team 6 officer and it was a one star at the time. I think he was the deputy task force commander. Went in and briefed and, and kind of saw the guys and said, hey, here's what we're doing. They're like, what do you need from us? Nothing. I'm letting you know what we're doing because I know what your contingency missions are if things happen in the region. Um, there's an opportunity for you guys to – I can build some stuff for you that will help. Like, nobody ever comes to us to go do shit for us that doesn't ask for something. Like, well, uh, I, I, I guess I'm the anomaly here. And he said, well, what could you use? I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm technically a singleton out here. I don't have a real unit I'm responsible to. So logistically, it's a nightmare to get back and forth to Bagram or Harat. He's like – not a problem. Calls in his S3 air. He's like, this kid, if he calls, you give him air anywhere he needs in the country within two hours. It's like, holy shit. So now I'm a 27-year-old GS-14 in country by my by myself. With, and task force is basically giving me access to their air. I can fly anywhere I want to go at any time, kind of going back and forth. Um, you know, going off base, doing whatever I needed to do. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not a spook. I'm not a spy. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not a real operator. I mean, what the hell am I? I'm like a support guy, you know, who's been around a lot of the cool guys, but I'm not, that's not me. So it was like being on the best ride at Disney World first. I mean, you get on there, like, how, I mean, how do you how do you go move on from that? So the, the operation went well. I was there for most of the summer for 2012 and then called the special program shop at CENTCOM and said, look, um, you know, I'm a civilian. We don't expect any medals out of this, uh, but I also don't want to ride cargo home. So if you guys can arrange for a ride, that'd be awesome. Sure enough, one of the guys at CENTCOM had been uh, a Marine One pilot for President's uh, Clinton and Bush and then afterwards went to the uh, CENTCOM executive uh, squadron which is flown by Marines out of LUD and it's Gulf Streams. 
So uh, they arranged for a uh, the commander's Gulfstream to come pick us up in Kabul. So and you can imagine now, I'm telling the PSYOP Sergeant Major, I'm living on the base with him. I'm like, hey, you know, I know you got to get out of theater. Uh, I'm going to have a jet pick us up. He's like, yeah, okay, kid, sure you are. I think the whole thing's <laughs> bullshit. To like two days before, and I'm like, no, I need your height and your weight and your bags because they're trying to calculate f- uh, fuel. So anyways, they picked us up, they flew us, and then I went back. And then um, when I went back to, to D.C., um, the undersecretary for policy, who's like the number three in the building at that point, um, overseeing all operations uh, across the department, um, there was a special office within the assistant secretary of special operations and low-intensity conflict uh, where I had responsibility for um, all of our special technical operations, some CWMD programs, um, all of our information operations programs, and then I ended up with hostage rescue and personnel recovery as well. For uh, yeah, which was and I'm, again wow. just kind of stumbling through. So that was my policy portfolio for uh, sensitive activities for for at OSD at that point. And um, President Obama had also launched a hostage policy review at that time. So I ended up as the SecDef's rep to the hostage policy review. Uh, for the White House. And so that's where we created the uh, special presidential envoy for hostage affairs and the hostage recovery fusion cell. So that all came kind of out of our work and, um, you know, oversaw a bunch of cool operations. But, uh, you know, I was reeling from PTSD. I was a fucking drunk at nighttime, an arrogant little douche at this point because I'm in an IPA GS 15 billet, like 28, way, an over promoted kit. I had no business being kind of where I was. And I had done well with it and kind of fumbled my way through. But there was one morning where I woke up and looked in the mirror. I was like, you have become everything that you hate about other people. You're an arrogant, angry, douchey drunk who's not, who's not done anything. Like, I'm not an operator. I'm not a spy. I'm not a special agent. I'm just, I'm a fucking bureaucrat now. And I'm moving pieces of paper from pile A to pile B. And is it really cool shit? Yes. Am I getting to interact with all the seniors in the building? Yes. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm just another staff guy. There's 30,000 people in the building. Um, and it was like a wake up call for me. Like, you, you know, you, you, your arrogance is just you're ridiculous at this point. So that's when I made a conscious decision. Like, look, I need to, I'm done at this point. I've over promoted. I'm not going to see the field. I had gone, uh, and enrolled in the air war college by correspondence. And that's when my CEO of the reserve was like, listen, you're in grad school at Hopkins. You're going to the air war college by correspondence and you're in E6. Like, do you need to commission or get the fuck out? Like this just, it doesn't make sense anymore at this point. And he's like, not if nothing else, he's like, it's, I've only seen one person in my career, do both well. And that was our former battalion commander, Ed, uh, Ed Hurley. So he became both a general officer in the reserves and he was also an SES at DOJ as a prosecutor. But normally your generals, uh, you know, when the reserves are guard are also not executives on the civilian side or vice versa. Like you kind of have to pick a path, right? right. Like you're, you're either going to be the executive and you're going to tap out as an 04 and 05 uh, and have a good career, but you can't dedicate the time needed and do the things needed to become, you know, a general on the reserve side or an admiral or the guard or vice versa. Anyway, so that was kind of the decision. And then in 2015, um, you know, at that point, it was right before the elections. Uh, and I said, you know, this is a good time to go. And I got recruited to go to uh, the largest hedge fund in the world up in Connecticut. And so that's when I left. So 2015 was sort of the end of my government service, per se. And then for the last seven years, I've been up here in the New York area, um, com- completing the commercial sector, first in finance, hated that. And then I left and went and ran operations for an aerospace defense company for about two years, about a quarter of a million dollar company quarter of a billion dollar company, rather. Uh, and then the last five, I've really been running the uh, aerospace and defense and high-tech electronics practice for a, uh, uh, an IT implementation firm in the tech sector. So business and digital transformation, in addition to doing um, some political stuff here as a party boss, and I was appointed as the uh, fire commissioner here for the city of about 70,000, and then also an elected justice of the peace, took over as the vice commander of the American Legion, a couple of boards uh, in the VFW, um, and then as if that shit wasn't enough, all of a sudden I end up getting, uh, whatchamacallit, um, 
uh, calls. I went to the Atlantic Council, so I'm there now as a senior non-resident fellow, um, doing some reading and writing there. Uh, and then last summer, Afghanistan popped off. Yeah. So it's because August. you weren't really doing anything at that point in time. No, no I was <laughs> bored. So um, I, had some, I had some time on my hands. And this is like the most bougie, bratty story. So I'm sitting there in Positano Hotel Marat, very you know Palazzo, very you know nice place, poolside. Um, you know, Afghanistan's going to shit. I've been writing about this for months now about leaving the interpreters behind. I had sued the State Department on behalf of my interpreter in 2015 and got him his, his uh, visa from Iraq, his SIV. So I'd been involved in the process in the past and just kind of seen the bureaucratic shit show that it involved and couldn't figure out why we weren't taking them with us. You know, as we were withdrawing from the you know remote outpost of the major base of the airfields, you take them with you if they're SIV eligible and you get them out of the country. None of that foreshadowed, you know, forethought happened. So anyway, my phone starts buzzing. I'm on Twitter and, um, you know, I get this message. Uh, Hello, Captain Alex. You know, so good to see you. You need to help me. I was your blah, blah, blah. You know, you were my commanding officer. And this year in Afghanistan, I was like, uh, wasn't commissioned officer, wasn't your captain, wasn't even in Afghanistan the years you were talking about. I was in Iraq when that happened. But I, he gave me his paperwork and all the certificates. So I reached out to some of the SF guys that were in first group and they connected me to people. Sure enough, it was his former team guys. They're like, yeah, he was a rock star. He was good. And it became an NDS officer afterwards, their intelligence service. And so I said, okay. So I did my best while I was there. My wife is furious at this point because we're on a Southern European, you know, we're in Southern <laughs> Italy and, you know, the Amalfi Coast at this point. And I'm buried in my phone. And so a um, couple of uh, former colleagues um, and friends who are now CIA paramilitary officers uh, were, you know, at the airport in Kabul. Others were stationed abroad. And so through the, the good old boy network, I'm basically back in, back in the loop on signal, talking to people. And I got this guy and then his six kids and his wife from Kandahar to Kabul and then in the gate at the airport, probably about a week and a half before the airport shut down. So that gave me my first, uh, okay, I can help people of sorts. And then former friends pulled me into what became known as Digital Dunkirk. It was a signal channel started by a West Point grad. It was USMA Kabul Departures, guy named uh, Chuck Nad, awesome dude. And it grew to about 800 people at one point. And while we're in there, we started hearing, you know, in the chat channel, uh, you know, I need to get my interpreter out. Yeah, you and the other 800 fucking people in here. That's why we're all here. But there were only like a certain number of folks who could actually do stuff. And I started watching the pattern. It was like at, at Joy, at Safi, at Alex, at this. And, and adding us for, I need help with safe houses. I need help with transportation. I need medical. I need airport access. So then I, I quickly started a side channel. But then we kind of got together and they had already formed an org that I, you know, in the preceding 48 hours that I then kind of joined and we said, okay, we have a totally integrated supply chain between the four of us. And um, we also, at that point had, uh, you know, the, my partner, Joy, she'd been the um, same age. She had also been very senior position at the Pentagon at a young age. And she had basically been the chief weapons buyers, uh, executive assistant or chief of staff. So she had access to the portfolio of special access program. So did I, as we're watching the airport start to collapse, started speaking to friends at state, at DOD, at CIA, at the Bureau, everywhere else. And we quickly realized there was going to be nobody left behind. Like there is a massive void. And knowing where the gaps and seams were in authorities, like this is a fucking mess. So uh, Jake Tapper calls on Tuesday and he's like, hey, um, you've got these four underage kids. They're, they have no parents, no paperwork. Uh, there's another 50 Americans. And so just started cold calling people on their phones. You don't know me. I'm not Afghan. I'm not Russian. You got to trust me. Where the hell are you? They're sending us their grids. We're so dispatching clan transportation to pick them up, sending them to safe houses that we had, and then shelling them to the airport uh, if we could get them in. And I mean, this then, sounds know, like some shit out of like Jason Bourne. Like this is like movie kind of stuff. Uh, it will be. So the guy that wrote the, the book, uh, the movie Argo, is doing the book on us now, actually, which is pretty wild. Um, and it's nothing that's going to be. It's an Afghan story. It'll be focused. They're Afghans, the hero. They're all the ones on the ground doing all this. We're back on couches. So this is some white savior complex. It's focusing on the people who took all the risk, and it'll stop by August thirty first. And everybody who's in this 
book that we're discussing is safely out of country now. So it's not like it's a, uh, you know, we're not putting anybody at risk. Right. And hopefully be able to use some of the, the proceeds to help continue to take care of people. But yeah, we did this all remotely. None of us had ever met each other at this point, which is the insane part. All through Signal and we're all meeting. And then from there, with the capabilities kind of grew. Um, so the Joy is brilliant, um, one of our partners, and she basically scaled tech around a couple Afghan-Americans to make sure that we had a, you know, you, you could turn a person into a capability and opened a website to suck in information. And within the first 24 hours, we had 10,000 people's data. So by the time the airport fell, we had moved 7,000 people to the airports, uh, 6,000 Afghans, 1,000 Americans, and uh, we still had 10,000 safe houses at the time that we had had across the country, 10,000 people. It was insane, the level of folks we had. So that whole thing goes down, not sure what the State Department's going to do. We knew there's going to be a massive gap in capability. And so had dinner with Jake Tapper with, with Joy and said, hey, uh, we have a shitload of the Americans left in country, uh, need to get in touch with the National Security Advisor. So he was able to connect me to Jake Sullivan. Sullivan and I spoke, and then he put me in touch with the State Department. And we got roped in the first series of meetings between the government and uh, the veterans and frontline civilian groups that were operating in space. And then uh, from there, we realized that the State Department was going to have several months gap in capability, um, just knowing what they were going to need. And so we said, okay, let's get let's get it moving. And so at that point, we ended up uh, taking care of business on the ground, and we were able to get uh, flight manifests and clearance approval. And so we were bringing in flights for state, uh, helping to pick up people, move them, uh, safe housing, food, like you name it. And so that was uh, that went on throughout the. Uh, throughout the fall or so. And so it was, uh, again, fully integrated supply chain, but everything was declared on paper. So we weren't trying to run some, you know, James Bond, Jason Bourne operation. Taliban made it perfectly clear. We don't like the airport operation with 60,000 people, 100,000 people in throngs rather. It makes us look bad. Everything's got to be orderly. So, okay, if that's how you want to do it. That's how we'll do it. So registered companies, um, you know, very honest and open. We're doing this. We're doing this. We're taking care of poor, starving people, which is true. They're either your problem or they're our problem. Unless you want another 10,000 people to feed, they said, not a problem. You guys can take care of it. And so, um, you know, folks that got themselves in trouble, I think, there were the ones trying to play secret squirrel, whereas we were like, look, this is humanitarian work. There's there's poor, starving people with nowhere to live who would work for the U.S. at some point. They need food, clothing, shelter, and transportation, medical care. And, you know, there's no weapons or spooky shit going on. This is just pure humanitarian. And so... In some, uh, either providing direct support through flights or providing the ground support to other flights that were leaving in total eight to 10,000 people afterwards as well. So it's still an ongoing process. Wow. Um, it's been yeah, it's been totally, totally wild. Um, and then Ukraine kicked off and got pulled into that as well for you know, helping with people and logistics and whatnot. So uh, it's been it's definitely been an insane year. So I've been averaging Sleep is between midnight and four or five in the morning. And then uh, I've got a full eight hour work day. And then the rest of the day on top of that, and in between is basically between Afghanistan and Ukraine. Um, in terms of peak stupid, I actually ended up developing a callus, if you can imagine this, on my right ring finger where I've been balancing my phone for the year. And I actually, I was like, I thought it was from going to the gym. My elbow started hurting. I went in there, it was tendonitis. The doctor's like, no, that's not from weightlifting from what you've described, but that's from over phone usage. He's um, not from holding your phone. So I was averaging somewhere between 11 and 13 hours a day of screen time on my iPhone uh, for the last the last year or so. So it got to the point where I've developed friggin' tendonitis in my elbow from from using the phone that much. I mean, I know that sounds insane, but that's 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 if you want to talk about staff weenie, staff nerd injuries. Yeah, there you go. That, that's that's the apex of it right there. Uh, yeah, so that's I mean, it in a nutshell, man. That's a hell of a nut and a big shell. Um, <laughs> So, I mean, it's hard to encompass all this, but I mean, when you, yeah. when you take a step back and you've gotten away from it for several years and you're, you're, when you look at all that you've done, um, connected to the military, 
Does does one experience stand out over the other for you? It's it's hard because they were so unique, right? So the time in uniform was true military time, right? That was the surge. That was real combat. So that stood out for me because that was the war experience that I had signed up for, for better or worse. It was like, you know, um, I you hear some racist and stupid comments from people, oh, you know, the military service. That's from, you know, poor black kids from the South or, you know, new immigrants coming in and, you know, not for, you know, white kids from affluent families in the cities, which I found to be disgusting, just as like the, the comments that you come back and you hear from people who supposedly had very progressive views. And I was like, this is gross. Fuck this. I'm signing up. Nobody, you know, it's our city, our state that was attacked, our people, you know, as a fellow New Yorker. Um, you know, full of piss and vinegar, right or wrong. And so I got that military experience that I that I sought, whether I knew what I was getting into or not, I had it. The second tour in 2010 was a lot of freedom and also working on some really cool stuff as a civilian and spending a lot of time, you know, working in support of the special operations community and intelligence folks and getting to see and getting some more skill sets. So that in itself was was very cool. And then in 2012, that was, you know, a clandestine operation at that point where I basically had a shitload of responsibility and very little oversight, if anything. Um, and each one of those uh, instances, uh, working for the military, either in uniform as a contractor or as a civilian, um, gave me um, experience and skill sets that have allowed me to continue my career afterwards. Um, and I think had they not been done in that sequence, uh, I don't know that I would have been successful at, at some of the latter operations without having done it prior. Have, having the experience you had as a soldier connected yep. to the military on top of the offices, you get away yep. from it and then you get back and you do the digital Dunkirk thing and – you're able to actually execute government operations more efficiently than the oh, yeah. government. Um, yeah. I asked this question, uh, given all those different experiences, uh, what are, it's, it's a broad answer, obviously, but what are some of the flaws in our military, in our government that you having done so many different things can just pinpoint and go, here's a systemic problem. Here's a systemic problem. Here's a systemic problem. I know it's a tough thing to answer, but just, you know, spitball it for me. No, I mean, because I've thought about this question. I think it's a good one to ask, right? Um, and I'm seeing it now, you know, myself, as you mentioned, firsthand. So um, being on the other side of the table now, uh, as long as I'm operating within policy and law, right, I'm not violating international or domestic law or, you know, going against U.S. policy, you pretty much can do whatever you want, right? Because as long as you're not violating the law, there's nobody to stop you from doing yeah, anything. So. True. Um, it was unique in the sense that the government experience let me know what our gaps and seams were going to be in capabilities, funding, authorities, programmatics, everything else. So it gave me a unique window into what was going to be going to be needed. That wasn't the only one. I mean, there's other people who've had similar experience and we've all kind of worked together. And in the Afghan space in general, there's hundreds of groups and thousands of volunteers. So I'm nobody special in that regard. There's plenty of people who've been who've been helping. Uh, and it's really been a team effort, um, you know, amongst a lot of groups. Um, those those experiences then allowed me to sit there and say, okay, this is what we're going to need. This is where it's going to get stuck because the bureaucratic stupidity, you know, that it's going to need the assistant secretary of bathroom management's permission to go set up a friggin' food hall somewhere in, in Kabul, never mind transportation. So what I found with the government in general, and you'll see this a lot with people who sell to the government to provide services, um, they don't want to build the restaurant. They want to order the food. They don't want to cook it. They don't want to be involved in that process. But if you build the restaurant, you cook the meal, and you put it on the table and all they got to do is come in and eat and pay the bill. They'll come in and eat and pay the bill. But the rest of that crap, they're not going to do. And so we sat there and said, OK, knowing that that's the case, what needs to be stood up from an infrastructure perspective uh, to make it viable and usable from a trade from tradecraft standpoint, everything else. Right. Um, and then what are they going to need? And knowing what those, you know, the answer to those two questions very able to quickly go in and say, I don't need so-and-so's permission. Can you imagine like saying, hey, I'm going to go set up housing for 10,000 people 
food, medicine, and then go set up clandestine transportation on the ground in Afghanistan in the middle of a collapsed war zone behind enemy lines with the Taliban taking over the country. That would have taken permission from POTUS, the Easter Bunny, and Jesus before anybody was going to let you go ahead and go do that kind of shit. wasn't going to happen. Don't forget about but Santa Claus. Exactly. And, and yeah, and Santa Claus gets final approval, right? So, I mean, at that point, we didn't need it. We just did it. It just needed to get done. We knew it needed to get done. We didn't need anybody's permission to do it because it was all humanitarian work. And so at that point, six to eight weeks later, you can sit down with the government and say, okay, instead of you guys wrestling with each other for how you're going to get somebody to sign off on this, it's done. The infrastructure is in place. This is here. And at first they're like, oh, this sounds like we're being sold, you know, sold something. We're like, no, we're not here to make a profit. And, you know, there's there's people who are in the core part of the group and then there's people when, on the periphery. When you say, here's the part that if you're, I'm sorry to cut you off. When you yeah, say that, the, if that was the government response to you, given all the people that were involved in Digital Dunkirk and setting all this up, and I know some of them outside yeah. of you, uh, and yeah. I, I know their backgrounds and what they've done. The idea yeah, that that group of people would be questioned on their sort of moral reason for doing this as if it yeah. was for financial gain is so insulting. It's almost like... Yeah. I would have went in that room and go, do you not know who is across from the table? Do you not know who you're talking to? Hi, there's a database. If you go in that computer at your desk there and look my name up, you'll see it in there and you'll see yeah. what I've done. Like, that's insulting that's exactly, to me. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, at first, we, we kind of looked over the cross side, like, what do you mean you're being sold something? And that's when we that's when they finally realized. So we said, look, we're not here to sell you something. We're not here to make we're telling you can use this infrastructure. We're here to do it's the shit that you couldn't figure out to do. Yeah, that the founding partners of our organization dumped $6 million out of their 401ks and savings accounts to fund the infrastructure to get it up and running because we knew that it was, it was needed and the government just didn't have friggin' time to get this done. And they, we just, they were incapable. We knew that they were incapable of getting this done. So basically what, what we figured out at this point is um, it was this weak point, right? And this gap in seam and, and everything that needed to get done um, that we were able just to kind of rapidly do. And if it was being done by the government because the giant bureaucratic institutions that manage this crap – it would have never gotten done. Um, so that's really like the biggest difference that I've seen is the speed at which we can move. But it, it, it couldn't just be like anybody coming in and doing it. And again, not that I'm special or my partners or other people we work with, but, no, but just unique set of experiences. Yeah, right? I mean, the, we, point, the we, point is, is that it was, it was a completely benevolent effort and benevolent yeah. agenda by people who genuinely cared about yeah. the welfare of people that put their lives on the line next to them, even though they didn't yeah. wear an American uniform. Uh, and, and it shouldn't be that hard of a premise. Yeah, they, they, should got, they should have got down on their knees and kissed your ass, honestly, is the way that should have been a political thank you for doing this. We'll take all the credit for it publicly because guess what? We know none of you are going to run out there and go, hey, no, no, we did this. We did this because that's not oh, who yeah. you are, because that's not why you did it to begin with. So they could have taken this gift horse and, and ran with it, but they decided to you know be jackasses. They did. So we did do some press uh, initially early on because we needed for fundraising, right? So we right. tried to, it was a hard balance between how much you can save versus can't save for OPSEC reasons, but it's also, that's the other difference. We're not the government. There is no blank check to get this shit done. So that, that became problematic. So I had one guy who was a wise ass from one of the other groups had responded to something on LinkedIn. He said, I can't believe you guys are, you know, putting this up there. I'm like, first of all, if you clicked on more than the headline, we didn't put it out there. The, the interpreter who was President Biden's interpreter uh, and his person we'd work with afterwards, nothing to do with us decided to come out and speak about his experience because we helped get President Biden's interpreter uh, over to Pakistan. And he you know, was able to be flown out by the U.S. military um, and some other you know, unique situations that had popped up. You know, we kind of helped the, the government in a few scenarios. But we've developed, I think, a pretty good working relationship. Uh, there's a coalition that was formed that works with the State Department to kind of help in this, in this capacity. And it really has become a very unique public-private public partnership um, in support uh, of an official government operation. Like nobody's running rogue nonsense or, you know, James Bond or Jason Warren wannabe crap, but it's, you know, there's, this is a government mission. 
um, you know, the the operation ended on August 31st. And basically what happened, if you remember hearing on the White House, well, if everybody's stuck, they can just kind of hop on a Delta flight in a few weeks to D.C. when the airport reopens, which all of us knew was not going to freaking happen. Right? right. So at that point, the State Department was basically, hey, here's like, I don't know, three, four dozen consular affairs and political officers. Um, you guys are going to have to now manage the semi-clandestine uh, evacuation of, I don't know, 200,000 people or so from behind contested lines in a collapsed war zone with no air support and uh, actually no airport operations at all. So good luck to you and let us know how that works out. Um, and that's when we realized, you know, they had no compartmented planning experience for a lot of the folks that were there, anything else. And so um, it wasn't a knock. It was just the reality of the situation we were looking at. And that's when we said, OK, they've got a critical gap. The White House wants to move on from the situation. We have people who are stuck. Um, and in terms of the reasons why, like you mentioned, Americans, obviously, it's our fellow citizens. we got to get them out. But for the interpreters, we made a promise uh, to them. We passed a law. And we said, hey, if you render an honorable service for at least a year and pass a background check, you're going to get the hell out of there. And, um, you know, I will never accept defeat. I will never quit. I will never leave a fallen comrade. That's our warrior, warrior ethos as, as U.S. Army soldiers, right? You don't leave anybody behind. And um, we did that. We left. I mean, at 120,000 people got evacuated, like 3% were the ones we actually intended to get. We evacuated most of Kabul's middle class, upper middle class, for that matter, are the wealthy people. All the interpreters are still stuck in the country. So they're, you know, a lot of them are still there at this point and they're vulnerable and they have no money and they can't work. And it's just, it's a shit show. It's, it's, it's unreal. We could do a whole podcast just on that. And I, I, I don't have the, uh, the, the emotional bandwidth right now, nor does my, (laughs) the the headache that would develop is, is, uh, more than I I care to get into at this point in time. Um, I I mean, I I guess what's left is like, when are you going to slow down? Like, do, do you feel like you need a break? Because I mean, all this. Again, what you sort of glossed over is the PTSD stuff and going yeah. through all that, you know, yeah. there's a sense that you could be burying a lot of it as you continue to dive into more and more projects and more and more work. So, I mean, where are you with all that? Good point. It's actually a great point. Um, it was – I had been – I mean, my, my alcoholism had just gotten out of control. So in terms of self-medicating, again, because I mentioned I didn't want to throw myself a pity party. I hadn't, you know, I hadn't been wounded, hadn't done anything valorous, and so it just feel – Guilty, right? Like, what are you what are you going to get treatment for? What the hell have you done? You're not wounded. You didn't, you know, you're not running around with Valor Awards where you saw some real crazy shit. You saw some combat. Finally got over it because I was just to become like a degenerate moron. I mean, I was drinking a bottle of Pinot Grigio at lunch, a bottle of Cabernet at dinner, and then seven to ten vodka martinis afterwards every night, seven days a week for almost 10 years. And, um, you know, I went to, I was smoking too. I quit smoking cigarettes. And then uh, finally went into the VA. I was like, you know what? You got to get treatment for this because I was just angry furious all the time, you know, uh, uh, just like a split second. Pretty, hair pretty highly separate. functioning alcoholic for the record. Yeah. I mean, that was the thing that, you know, I interviewed for Bridgewater. I was dead drunk. I drank a liter of vodka the night before. It was a one in 10,000 higher. <laughs> I was drunk until 11 o'clock. I was hung over with a miserable pounding headache until 1 p.m. And I was slamming nips in the bathroom on the way out the door. Um, you know, it just got to the point where it, episodes like that, obviously my performance there was atrocious as a result of it. Um, but that was a wake up call in itself. I mean, surrounding yourself with the world's smartest people. And all of a sudden you're this, you know, pompous, drunken jackass. And I, you know, I got, finally went to the VA and got medical paper. I got by blood drawn and I was going in to try to get treatment for PTSD. And they're like, look, um, it's got to be service connected in order for it to be, in order for you to get treatment here. Cause you didn't retire your reservist. You have to go through the medical screening to get qualified and then be able to get treatment. So I had to go through the initial screen and the VA here in Connecticut at West Haven is affiliated with Yale. So my PCP, she's a Cornell med grad. She's a Yale professor. She also, uh, you know, is a provider at the VA hospital. So the care I get here compared to what I had in DC is like night and day. And she's probably in her mid fifties, beautiful, intelligent, 
calm, very plain, uh, very well spoken. She's not someone who curses, like, like the epitome of what you expect from an Ivy League physician at this point. And then I get in the room and she said, uh, now, how's it going? Great. Everything else. It was a second time meeting. And again, never using profanity. And she looks at me. Can I ask you a question, Mr. Pleats? I said, sure. What's going on, doctor? The fuck are you doing? I'm like, <laughs> okay. Um, what do you mean? She goes, your blood goes back and your liver enzymes are 160. I'm like, means nothing to me. She's like, they're supposed to be between 20 and 40, you know, basically think you moron. Uh, she didn't use those words, uh, you know, and your drinking is what's causing it. And then she starts giving me an abdominal exam and she's like, I can feel your liver. And I'm like, great. Like it's there. And she's like, no, I'm not supposed to be able to feel it. It means it's swollen. Uh, and at that point, she's like, look, you, you're on your way to cirrhosis and a liver transplant, uh, like in the next couple of years, if you don't cut this out. Um, and I'd been drinking because I didn't want to deal with the PTSD and everything that was with it. And they're like, look, we can't even send you therapy and give the drugs you need if you're still drinking because your liver can't process what's going on. So that was its own fight. And then finally got in to see a, um, a PTSD specialist at the, the VA clinic there. And the woman was absolutely phenomenal. She was a nurse practitioner. And she's like, look, I can t- I kind of tell what's going on with you. You know, we, we spoke for a while and she said, look, we're going to try some, some medication that worked. And um, between her and my PCP, the two, my primary care physician, the two of them actually put together like a legitimate plan. Said, okay, like we're used to in the military, right? Here's the objective, fully healthy, functioning, normal adult to the extent possible. This is the shit show that you are now. And this is what needs to get done in between to get you to where you need to be from a weight perspective, for liver functions, for PTSD health, for hearing loss, tinnitus, all the other bullshit that happened. And it was incredible. And it took six months of iterations to get the combination of medication right and, you know, uh, therapy and all the other stuff and, and talking to them and just realizing, I mean, looking back now, I mean, I'm twice as productive as I was at work. I wouldn't be doing any of the shit that I'm doing now if I you was know still tracking. You scary it is to hear you say I'm twice as productive now as I used to be? That scares the shit out of me. I'm just letting you know. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, th- th- there's a level I yeah. can't get to. I'm enjoying it. I mean, it's been great. It's given me an opportunity to kind of get reinvolved. And you, you've heard the phrase here, but you know, you never really get out. I used to hear that roll my eyes. DC, what the fuck does that mean? You get out, you're done. Like you're not in anymore. Uh, and sure enough, it, the gang got back together last August when this happened and uh, been kind of stuck back in and you know, went from Ukraine, Afghanistan to Ukraine. And now good for still you guys, going. man. I mean, I, I, I wish I, I had a bigger role in it. I wish I was, was, was more of a player in it. Um, I wish I had the time to devote to it the way you guys did. Um, now, granted, I didn't have any Afghan interpreters. Mine were only Iraqi, and mine was out, so I didn't have the same level of passion, but I certainly had some empathy for what you guys wanted to do. But good for you. Good for all you. Uh, you're, you're all saints, and, and you're all great people who, who understand what service is and what we really lay our lives on the line for, and that's the person next to us. And damn it, those interpreters were next to us every single damn day. Saved I saved mean, my life. Yeah. So did mine. Yeah. I mean, I mean, literally those scenarios we walked into, I would have had no idea how dangerous things were if they weren't there. And just like you, I didn't have any Afghan interpreters I was still dealing with um, at that point, because when I was there, I didn't really have a dedicated one. I used a couple of interpreters while I was out and I wasn't out all that often anyway. That wasn't exactly a combat tour. It was more like I said, it was a national uh, ops intel mission. Um, but it just felt like it was the right thing to do at the time. And, you know, we were all on couches, though. I mean, so while it's great, you know, we had the time and it was a lot of work and it was integrated and coordinating all of the work. Uh, was done by Afghans, yeah. right? Anything being done, I mean, minus the pineapple guys who were on the ground and were doing some really cool shit. Scott Mann and his crew, those guys are just amazing. And then um, actually Tim Kennedy and uh, yep. uh, and Nick. Nick uh, Palmashan. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I mean, they they're also, they were also on the ground doing some really amazing heroic shit. I mean, those guys are just really, really just good people. Um, and it's incredible to, you know, gotten a chance to meet some of those guys. But it was Afghans otherwise. 
So once again, the people bearing all the risk and the responsibility and doing all the hard work were Afghans. And it's sort of the same thing in Ukraine. So it was almost a sense of guilt. Like I was, I had a blue check on Twitter. I'd done a bunch of media appearances and bullshit. So Chuck was like, okay, you can be our spokesman for digital Dunkirk and a public face for, you know, our org, which was human first that uh, our partners, the Ralph brothers, Safi and Nice and Zabi, and then uh, our other partner, Joy had kind of stood up. And so it kind of felt a little guilty because it was some, you know, it was a lot of attention being focused, uh, which happens when you're a spokesman, right? Everybody will look at you like they think of an effort. They're like, oh, that's the mouthpiece. But that's really all that it was. Like, yes, was I an ops guy helping to do to do that? And was I um, shepherding and still shepherding? Yes. Uh, you know, Afghans were there and helping them through the process. But I wasn't the one doing all the, you know, the work on the ground there. Those were Afghans. And I think that's the part that's kind of lost in the story. And that's what we're hoping to bring out with the uh, the book and any media stuff that comes afterwards is to focus back where it belongs. And it's, you know, not only were they by our side for all these years in combat getting shot at, but then when we left and we had to put together an organization to help get those Afghans and Americans out who were left behind and behind the lines. It was those same Afghans who could have put their happy asses on a plane during the airport operation because they had the connections who stayed behind to help. I mean, just talk about, you know, the character of who these people are. They're coming over when you hear people make negative comments like, oh, we're bringing more of these damn refugees. in." I'm like, those people have seen more combat than 99 percent of Americans have. And they put their lives on the line for us for a very meager paycheck. These weren't these weren't getting rich off this. You know, people make that comment, too. So and also they they know what it's like to leave your house in the morning, knowing you may never return on a routine basis. We that's a that's not a thought that enters many Americans head. No, and it's, it's certainly not. Um, but it's also been an incredible experience, too, because, you know, I was a Connecticut Republican, which I don't even know what the hell that leaves me on the political spectrum. A lot of the folks who were involved in the coalition were uh, a lot of Democrats who were, who were in there and involved with some uh, left of center, not, uh, you know, fringed by any means, left of center, um, you know, think tanks, national security um, uh, organizations. And so it was a lot of people that I didn't get to work with. Now, I was one. I was an IPA, so it's a non-political appointee. Uh, you know, during the Obama administration, and Mike Vickers was another Republican building. He was the Undersecretary for Intelligence. So I was kind of a, uh, a, a unicorn in that sense, where I was in the administration. Granted, it was non-political, and it wasn't a super senior level. But I got to meet, especially in the building, all of those senior politicals uh, who are now either back at the Pentagon or at the NSC or at State. Um, you know, for uh, Mr. Like, for example, Mr. McKeon's the undersecretary uh, over at state now. Um, and uh, Brian McKeon, he was the undersecretary for, uh, acting for policy at one point. Uh, the chief of staff, Kelly Magsman, now for uh, for General Austin, she was an assistant secretary in policy while she was there. So there's got to be like 15 or 20 of those seniors who are back. So that part was cool because that connection that again, that experience you're talking about connecting things back allowed me to then reach into those senior politicals who I had previously worked for, you know, in, a, in that capacity doing the weird sense of activity shit. But it also gave me a chance to meet a lot of my peers who I otherwise wouldn't have met because, you know, Washington works. There's one administration or the other, and you go and do your think tank time or go off in the industry, you pick the right candidate, you support them, and then you come back. And I've just found this entire really cool group of people um, whose worldviews are things that I, you know, I may or may not have always agreed with over the time of his views change over. And get a chance to work with them and get to know them. And, you know, uh, it was so it's really been like an enlightening experience for me to learn from folks uh, across the aisle um, and really and because it, it was not political. None of this has been political at all. Uh, but, you know, you just have the sidebar conversations. Things pop up. You talk about this or that. And so that's been that's been a really cool experience for me. And it's really been a positive one for growth. So there's really two large umbrella organizations now that are working. So it is the Afghan Evac Coalition. Uh, that Sean leads. And then there is the Moral Compass Federation, which Travis leads, uh, which has got more of the, the mill special operations veterans on that side. So between the two, um, they kind of represent the majority of the uh, the veterans and frontline civilians that are that are in the space. And it is 
a lot of former colleagues and friends, a lot of random people I didn't know. Um, there are some really great people doing some really great work. There are other people operating the periphery who, you know, like to engage in drama and, uh, and rumor spreading, um, you know, which has just been, it's, so it's a bit like high school to a certain extent, you know, some of it, uh, yeah, but otherwise it's been, uh, it's been really, really good. And the government uh, went from that initial, what do you guys really want? Are you trying to sell us something to, okay, this is altruistic. You guys are actually helping us. I mean, we've helped get a couple of American hostages out. Um, one of our partners was actually taken for 105 days. Um, you know, he was in Taliban prison. He got out not that long ago. Um, and so that was also bizarre where, uh, having had again, hostage rescues, my portfolio now all of a sudden, okay, these are all the same crew of people, same, you know, same conduits that I've been dealing with while I was in government. And so, uh, you know, he was a naval reservist. So NCIS is involved. It's a hostage casing or taking. So the FBI is involved. Obviously we're helping states and states involved and, you know, there's white house attention. So, uh, corralling those people together on the government side. And then because I had the experience on the hostage policy and helping to stand up the institutions and all that are now responsible, it gave me not government authority. So I don't want to give anybody that impression by any means, but a little bit more broad room to kind of move and help coordinate with, uh, with different institutions to, uh, to help resolve that situation. So uh, we're able to get one U S and British citizen out of that ordeal. Another five were subsequently just released. And we were able to get another couple of Americans out who had been detained by the Taliban as well. Um, and all above board, nothing, you know, nothing weird or trying to be, you know, cool guys about it, but we were able to use uh, connections and things on the ground to kind of make that happen. So um, that's been the really re- rewarding part is helping to bring those bring those people home. Well, uh, you know, I'm not impressed. What do you want me to tell you? Big deal. Okay. <laughs> I'm from, not from, 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 from one uh, Italian New Yorker to another. So freaking what? Big deal. Okay. <laughs> I can eat six slices of pizza in one sitting. There you go. Uh, I kid, but uh, I mean, look, uh, it's it's incredible. Um, you know, the life of service, man, and, and this is what's great, Alex, is that you've never stopped living it. Um, I, I hope genuinely you do take some time for yourself uh, and, and provide yourself the time and the space for the self-care that we talked about at the top of the show and, and give yourself the room to uh, – to sometimes take a pause and stop and smell the roses and don't forget about, you know, family and loved ones and everything else. And, uh, all, all that stuff is important, but, uh, yes. listen, there are people in this world, man, who, um, who just force change. You can, you can hate them. You can deny them. You can, you can try to but ignore them, but they facilitate change, brother. And that's, that's all you do every day. And I'm, uh, it's, it's amazing to, to sit here and talk with you. Um, it's, it's an honor to, to, to have you on this show and hear about all your experiences and thank you so much for sharing them all, man. I mean, this is just, it's overwhelming. I kind of knew your level of sarcasm when you told me on Twitter, when you get to my level of guest, you've run, hit the bottom of the barrel. I'm like, okay, this is somebody I definitely want to talk to. Um, but yeah, I, again, I just had a call it a gut feeling, man. Uh, and I didn't even know you were from New York when we first connected. So, um, that's it, all that. But, uh, you know, I just. I thank you. You know, honestly, it, it's, it's the word we don't say enough. Uh, and, and it's it's heartfelt and it's it's pure gratitude. Thank you for serving. Thank you for being a great representative and a steward of the uniform outside of it. Now, in a world where things are so convoluted in a world where where messaging is so messed up and it's such a critical part of how we operate as a military. There are still a core group of folks like you who understand the very words 
that we rose our right hand and swore about and they still mean a lot and that the warrior ethos and the things that hang up in the halls of armories and everything else that look like it's just mean something. bad crap and bad decorations. No, all that stuff is there for a reason to pound into our heads of, of who we want to be and how we want to live by a certain value set. And you embody that every day, man. And, and I'm rambling, but I just, you know, I, I, am, I am beyond uh, humbled uh, to to have heard this story. And I'm so glad that I get to share it with everybody here who's listening and watching, man. So just, uh, yeah, again, just incredible, incredible work. I tell you to keep it up, but I don't think I need to. I think you'll probably do that on your own. Um, Soldiers for life, right? Isn't that the term? You ain't, you ain't kidding. And, and I, I hope that your health is in a good place. I hope that your physical health and your mental health are, are in a good place. Because honestly, you know, again, without that, um, all this work becomes for naught, right? Um, yeah, it, yeah, I mean, you, you can tell. Uh, you, you know, you don't want to be the drunken frat boy anymore. That that stage is past. <laughs> uh, no, nobody likes that I, guy. I'm glad it was the foundation for what got us here, right? Absolutely oh, yeah. is. Um, I mean, it's been incredible. And then you know, getting to meet people back in and who got involved again, like you know, Jason went from college from years ago. Um, it's just been incredibly rewarding and humbling. And um, you know, the the folks that have been involved in these efforts have just been. I mean, we've got a PhD data scientist professor who runs all of our data side of things. Um, you know, we've got a number of attorneys from the top law schools in the pot in the world who are you know doing volunteer legal work for us, and you know some of the top special operators and the who's who of spies and operators who have been you know retired and are now like looking to help interpreters. It's really just been an, uh, just a great group of people using the tradecraft and skill sets. You know, the U.S. taxpayers paid for try to you know continue to pay that forward and put it to good use and. Uh, I mean, I, there's nothing that I have done individually as a person that would have that would have changed anything. It required like true teamwork because yep. everything that we've done collectively, somebody had a specialization or skill set, um, whether that be linguistically, logistics, um, uh, uh, in, you know, previous intel backgrounds, operations, whatever it was, connections on the ground, other groups. No one person could have done any of the things that's happened over the last year. It really did require uh, a true yeah. team effort. And um, that was the cool part. It was like, it was right. almost like, yeah. we use like an OSS model where it's like, okay, what do they do? We need somebody doing comms, finance, marketing, logistics, languages, whatever else, and legal. And, you know, the glorious amateurs. All right, we're a bunch of clowns. No idea what the hell we're doing. We got some experience, but you know what? Fuck it. We'll figure it out. I literally remember the, per- the conversation. The was hilarious. <laughs> it, it was hilarious. I remember the conversation with my partner. We're like, well, you know what? If the U.S. government isn't going to figure out the semi-clandestine evacuation of a quarter of a million people from behind enemy lines in a collapsed war zone with the Taliban in charge, fuck it. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. That's exactly how it is. Well, again, man, uh, listen, you stay in touch. Yeah. It's great to get to meet you. I, you I hope it. we continue to have more conversations here. Looking forward to it. Uh, and, and thank you so much uh, for, for your time today. You too, brother. Thanks, Mark. Alex Pleitzis. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You too. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 